vintage scenarios, and more on episode 76 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 76 of So Many Insane Plays, our vintage scenarios, where we examine five intriguing vintage scenarios for your consideration. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or TheManadrain.com. As always, we begin our show with a few announcements, and we have one this time, Steve. Something, yeah, something important for the vintage community, and I would say unprecedented, but it's quite <laughs> obviously precedented <laughs> of a sort, and it's very timely given your recent uh, articles on the subject. So, Star City Games has announced a new convention, basically, and this event powerfully features a large Power 9 vintage tournament in the style of their old star city games vintage tournaments in fact this is a two-day event so it's set up much like a gp exactly now the power nine series returning is a huge deal i mean the star city games power nine series was one of the seminal series in the history of the vintage format and it ran from 2004 to 2008 and as you've mentioned or alluded to i last fall i published a an article that canvassed all 27 <laughs> events in this this series the last being 10 years ago uh, this SCG Con appears to be, uh, as you said, a, a kind of convention that is a, coincides with the 25th anniversary of Magic. Mm-hmm. So it gets me really excited for a number of reasons, but one is because I think we're going to see some really cool 25th anniversary stuff, but if it's just an annual event, all, all the better, right? And that would be pretty amazing. <laughs> I mean, I'll this, take it. Yeah, we'll take it. They're bringing back not only the Power 9 series, but also the old Duel for Duels series, which was the legacy uh successor to the Power 9 series. Right. And then they're having the Star City Games Invitational as part of their normal SCG tour. But we need to spend some time talking about the setup for this. And, you know, the way they're they're selling it is it's a nostalgic event returns to SCG Con, which is just, it's awesome. Um, and they're, as you said, they're giving away a full set of Power 9, unlimited Power 9, for a $100 entry fee. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this event is going to, t- SCG Con is going to take place in Roanoke, Virginia. And Roanoke, as many of you may uh, know, is not only home base for Star City Games, where their star, uh, where their game center is, but it's also a pretty relatively small town, about of a hundred thousand people in 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 the heart of Virginia. So it's not exactly a city that you can reach by a major metro. There's a very small airport that flies in, <laughs> or you can or you can get in through a, a a more distant major airport, like through Richmond. But it's going to definitely take some planning if you have any interest in attending. You're going to have to figure out some logistics. Yeah. Um, this event, though, is a $100 entry. So it borrows uh, Nick Detweiler's NYSE Open approach of a higher entry fee, but a really, uh, a really um, high-end set of prizes, which is great. But the structure is really, really different. So let me describe the schedule here. Um, the first day of the tournament. So the tournament runs the weekend of June 
uh, let me get the dates right, June 8th through the 10th, 2018 in Roanoke, Virginia. But the vintage, if you if you were about to book your flights and you're thinking you can fly in on Friday and then leave on Sunday, uh, you would miss the boat. <laughs> <laughs> the first day of the event is Friday, and it starts at 10 a.m. So unlike other Power 9 events, they've actually broken this tournament into two days. So as you said, it follows kind of the approach of a GP. And the way they have it described on their website is that at 10 a.m., the Power 9 series will begin, and they say they want you to be on site by um, 10.50 a.m. It'll begin at 10 a.m., and there'll be eight rounds of Swiss, uh, a Swiss rounds of vintage. And they say all players with 18 or more match points or tied for top 32 advance to day two. So, you know, that I, th- basically more than 32 players can make day two, but there's a limit to how many players will make day two. And then there's something of like a separate tournament the next day on Saturday at 12 noon, round nine will begin, and they have five rounds of Swiss with a cut to top eight. Then the top eight will have a three round single elimination rounds that they only the top eight though will be streamed on Twitch. So there's a coverage schedule, and that will be the only segment of the tournament that's actually streamed live with coverage. It's worth noting that this is a sanctioned event. So no proxies allowed. Good point. And also prizes go down to the top 32. Power 9 to the top 8. Top 16, 200 bucks for Star City. Top 32, 100 bucks for Star City. So just to clarify, it's not like the NYSC Open. It's not where the top 8 will draft the Power 9. <laughs> Instead, first place is automatically awarded Black Lotus and Time Twister. Yeah. Second place, Mock Sapphire. Third place, Ancestral, and so on, all the way down. So yeah. it's it's predetermined. Now, Ancestral may be more valuable than Mox Sapphire. So third place may actually be a better <laughs> a better <laughs> position than second place, right, Kevin? But I think the reason they maybe have that there is to make it more conducive to splits. I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the the drafting of the prize is a little bit of a I would say antiquated or maybe quaint, you know, approach to things. It has some drawbacks. It forces everyone to stay around until the tournament's over and it can produce some weird results. So I think them assigning it is kind of nice. It's just, it, right. It, there are, yes, there are some corner cases where someone would actually take these third, fourth, fifth place prizes one over the other, but I don't think anyone's going to complain. So, So let's talk just about two things briefly. Let's talk about, um, the the fact that there's no proxies allowed and it's sanctioned, and let's also talk about um, the attendance issue and how how this structure what this suge- structure suggests. Uh, it's obviously a big deal that they're not allowing proxies. In the mm-hmm. early days of the Star City Games Power Nine series, uh, they allowed five proxies, and then later on they expanded it to ten, I think fifteen. Um, so so making it sanctioned is obviously a big deal. No quote unquote play test cards. <laughs> um, that that definitely makes it more difficult for players to attend who might otherwise be interested. In our last episode, you made the point, Kevin, that that the fact that so many tournament organizers in Vintage allow people to play playtest cards makes it actually a, a much less expensive format to play. But that's not the case for events like this. So what do, what do you make of this, the, the fact that they're not going to allow playtest cards? I think it's just a necessary evil. They need to understand that to support the format going forward, they're not going to they're not going to be the bastions that they were back in the turn of the century for for proxy play across the nation. Right. And plus right. there may be some adherence to the notions of Organized what play. Well, of what 
the effect of proxies did on the market in sure. the U.S. for the long run. And that's a debatable topic, and I know lots, a lot of people are, are opinionated on that one way or the other. But as a one of the largest vendors, and especially of power cards in the U.S., they may be trying to you know, put a stake in the ground and say, from here forward, we want to try and promote vintage in this way. So they've also probably, and almost certainly, witnessed the growth and effectiveness of the vintage champs being just an ever-growing and large sanctioned tournament. And so they know now that the sanctioned draw is there. And the combination of all those factors says they they no longer need to basically go by the their old <laughs> their old suppositions of supportability. Yeah. Well, I, I know from uh, monitoring the reaction to this announcement that a number of players are, are really unhappy about the fact they can't play can't play with uh, playtest cards. But but I, I understand the decision entirely. Um, it definitely means that you're going to have a lot more of the players playing kind of tribal Eldrazi, hate bears type decks than you otherwise would. So the metagame, and we'll do, we'll probably do a prep show or show around the time before this event to kind of go over some of the metagame considerations, but it definitely means that the event is, the metagame is not going to mirror the Magic Online metagame, um, just because of this, of the budget constraints. Um, players have also complained they've wanted Star City Games to award one of piece, one or more of the pieces of power to the highest quote-unquote finishing budget deck, which is is a kind of a, a tradition that goes back not only through the Eternal Weekends, but long before that. You know, the earlier Bizarre Moxins did that and so on. Right. And they and thus far, they haven't announced anything like that. But Kevin, the more interesting thing I wanted to talk about is, is the structure. I mean, it's functionally 13 rounds plus a top eight. <laughs> and and that makes sense if you have a big a big event. But just, you know, for folks who want to and I actually think it is valuable to go back and look at my history of the Power Nine series because in the appendix I have, as I've mentioned in previous uh, episodes, uh, an index of every previous event with the number of players, the metagame breakdown, coverage, and top eight deck lists. But at a glance, you can see how many players attended each of these events. So just for the events in Roanoke, you know, the the, the Star City Games Power Nine event that had the most number of players was a Rochester tournament that had 173 players, Rochester, New York. But the most number of players, the, the the Roanoke location in particular, did not do particularly well. <laughs> um, you know, there were only a handful of events that were actually ever held in Roanoke, because when Rich when uh, Star City Games was holding events in Virginia near their home base, they actually held most of them in Richmond at the Richmond Convention Center, which is you know I don't know sixty miles or so from Roanoke. Um, but the Roanoke events, I mean, the attendance for Roanoke were as follows. They were 47 players, 43 players, and 60 players. Mm. That's, that's not big for an, an, you know, a, I mean, those were the least well attended events in the series. <laughs> um, you know, not, and they weren't particularly close. Charlotte was pretty close, but on average, you know, the, the Chicago events, the, um, the upstate New York events and most of the bigger Richmond events got over a hundred players. So it's not inconceivable that this event, I don't know, you know, how many players will actually end up showing up, but it's not inconceivable that only a hundred players or so show up. I mean, the, the NYSE opens, which are rooted in, in a region that has more feeder communities, right. uh, only last year got what, 130 players. So it, it's, 
more likely than not, I think that this gets less than 100 players. So you're going to have 13 rounds of Swiss for 100 for 80 players, maybe. <laughs> that seems pretty egregious. What do you make of that? Well, if that's the case, you're right. That's overkill in terms of tournament size. So I would say I feel like the draw will be more players. And I'm trying to think of how I can justify that. But, but, I, but even I, Eternal the, Week, how many, how many rounds was Eternal Weekend last year? Yeah, uh, 10, right? I think it was 11, maybe 10 or 11. You played all of them. <laughs> I think. Um, it, oh, Maybe sorry. Well, too. when you said last year, I was thinking 2016. No, 20. <laughs> 2017 was 10 rounds. Yeah. Yeah. That much I remember. So this and is I three more ten, than that. I think it was 10 rounds before. Okay. I mean, you're right. It's, it's, you're completely right. It's indisputable that the quantity of rounds is, is way overmatched for even 200 players. It's not even well, close. Let so, alone 60. Right. Which I would say there's more likely to be 60 than 200, frankly. I find myself wondering, though, if the overall scope of this event will be a greater draw than the NYSE or the Waterbury, right? That may be true, but the problem with that is that players have to pick and choose what events they're going to play in. Oh, you know, yeah. This isn't like this isn't like Eternal Weekend where you can play in both the Vintage Championship <laughs> and you know the Legacy Championship. You have to pick. I mean, if you're in the top 32, you don't get to play in the Duel for Duels event or the Star City Games Invitational. Yeah. So it's not like. It's not like this is an event where there's a kind of agglomeration effect where, you know, someone might come for Legacy, but they'll drop into the dip into the vintage event. It's well, not really set up for that. I, I can't argue with that. You're completely right. I, I would just posit that unlike NYSE and the Waterbury, this event has a number of great artists coming. It has cosplayer features. It has Star City Games uh, uh, authors and, and other celebrities of a sort there to meet and to talk with there's lots of special attractions above and beyond what nick and what ray have been able to put together for their events historically true so true and there's, it does, there's it simply does feel more like an eternal weekend yeah and there's yeah. simply tons of on-demand events and other challenges and stuff so yes. your point about if you're in the top 32 is is certainly true, to, but only to a point, right? Let's say you're six and two, you're just on the bubble going into day two, and you lose two rounds starting at starting at uh, nine a.m. <laughs> well, I mean, you're done in time to play, possibly for the duel for duels. It starts at eleven, and there's all kinds of other challenges, including a vintage challenge at noon. So. I think you're right, but only to a point. I mean, there is still plenty I mean, for, to do on example, Saturday if you scrub out of day two. Well, for example, the Roanoke Open, which may be one of the main events, that's a modern event, starts at 10 a.m. on Saturday. And the Duel for Duels, as you said, the Legacy event starts at 11. Yeah. And the Power 9 event, day two, starts at noon. So you can't do all three of those, oh, let alone it, it any two of them. It at noon? I thought it started earlier than that. No, no, that's, I said that in the, in the announcement. Yeah, sorry, my mistake. Well, okay. Day two of the Power 9 event st- starts yeah. at noon so that, you know, th- the players who make day two get to sleep in, which is well, nice. Um, but the things I said, though, are still mostly true. There are, there are large events. There's a vintage challenge starting at four. There's a legacy at 530, another vintage at 630. I mean, yes, they don't have the same draw as, say, a legacy champs on day two on Saturday. I'll grant you that. But there is still a lot to do. It's set up like a GP such that if you get knocked out of the the event you're there primarily for, you can keep playing your format of choice uh, probably within a few hours. And that's not that's not to speak of just regular on-demand events, because 
they're just going to fire things like booster drafts and stuff, I think, on demand too. So it really is set up like a GP. There's a lot to do. If you, even if you make day two, you could, I don't know, change your mind and just play in a legacy event the next day or just play a couple of rounds and, and move into another event if you're not happy with your performance. Well, I, ha- I have not followed, you know, what kind of attendance uh, recent Star City Games events get. But uh, again, uh, given what the NYSE is able to, to draw, you know, yes, Eternal Weekend, uh, you know, we had how many players did we have at Eternal Weekend? Was it 300, 400 some players yep. at that event? Uh, I mean, it would be amazing if it got something like that. I, I just think in the South, you know, maybe it will. Maybe it'll get 200 players, but 13 rounds of, of Swiss. I mean, it that's such an ex- extreme amount of magic. And, you know, I'm always for more magic, but you can imagine someone getting top eight going X and three with that kind of structure, <laughs> possibly even X4. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're right. It's going to be more like a GP or a pro tour kind of record going into the top eight. I would agree because there's so many extra rounds. Well, uh, I think there are many factors pushing and pulling the attendance up and down, right? It's fair to say. Yeah. Proxies is huge. Location is huge. But then there's extra draws, there's extra events, there's great artists. The artists are incredible. I mean, it's not like just one or two. They've got Greg Staples, Rob Alexander, who's huge for vintage, Pete Venters, Christopher Moeller, Anson Maddox, who's huge for old school, Mark Tadine, who's, I mean, he's everywhere, but yeah. he's still huge. Ken Meyer Jr. is huge for old school. Jesper Mirfors is huge for old school. Jeff Lobenstein. Uh, Steve Prescott, these that's a long list of great artists that are relevant to vintage and old school, which, uh, you know, our audience is very relevant, yeah. uh, you know, focused on, but not just that, obviously. That, that's a great... Anson Maddox. Yeah. Anson yeah. Maddox doesn't travel around that much. I've been fortunate Mr. enough to Her- see him at... Mr. Minotaur. <laughs> Gen Con, yeah. There's some fantastic old school stuff that Anson and Jesper have done. And if you're not the sort of person who travels around very much to GPs and things or things on the West Coast, then these are artists that you may not have encountered in your travels. True. Well, enough said about this. We will talk more about it in future episodes. And we will both be heading there. Definitely. Um, I've already got my flight booked, so I'm (laughs) really looking forward to this. Kevin, another big announcement coming up is um, I'm organizing an event in the Bay Area, and I won't spend too much time on this, but on March 8th in Berkeley, if you are an old school player at the Albatross Pub, which is a really cool pub, it, it reminds you of the Eagle and Child in Oxford, England, if you're familiar with you know, Tolkien lore. But it's kind of got that kind of old school vibe when you walk in. You know, it's 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 a it's kind of a gaming pub, uh, but it's also a hipster hangout. And uh, for folks who've read my old school articles on vintage magic, I published some photos of what the back room in there looks like. But anyway, uh, <laughs> on on the evening of March 8th, uh, I am hosting a 96 old school event. I'm giving away some really cool, about $50 worth of prizes in old school. We're going to have three or four rounds of, of old school 1996 post Mirage, which includes Alliances and Mirage. And on the Bay Area old school group on Facebook, I've got the, de- the details in terms of restricted lists. Um, but... Uh, if anyone just shows up and and uh, and plays, there's no playtest or proxies, but but we're pretty liberal in terms of allowing people to use reprints. Um, play play in that event. Um, I'm giving away prizes to the the best record. Um, so we've never done 96 in the Bay Area. I've held a couple of 95 events that were really fun. So I thought it would be it fun to organize another event. 
and I haven't organized a big event since the fall where I did the um, I think I mentioned it before the old the Jin Ifrit War event, which was really cool. But um, <laughs> and I, I haven't really seen anyone do a ninety six event before, so I thought I would be one of the first to try. Well, that's cool. I am I'm definitely in favor of moving old school into a, a, a diversification. It's, right. it's something that you, I know, have spoken about uh, kind of vehemently on a number of occasions, but it hasn't, to your point, actually manifest very much that old school right. has become an exploration of a number of different time periods. Exactly right. I think that's cool. Exactly right. And because of errata and so on, uh, it makes new archetypes viable that would, would not have been at the time. Um, I will give away one combo deck that if anyone's listening and considering going... <laughs> that is permitted. So, so <laughs> visions is not legal because visions allows a lot of different things. It's just we we go up to the end of ninety six, right? Uh, but storm cauldron fast bond combo is legal, and neither and fast bond is unrestricted for this event. So Ooh. it's a six mana kind of channel effect where you can uh, replay lands and get as much mana as you have life. Cool. Um, pretty painful with pretty painful with city of brass, but right. Well, but, and with storm cauldron, your lands tap for two, right? Is yeah, that, so you can you you yeah. drain you drain life, you know, to gain. Um, you know, I'm not a hundred percent sure. I should I should look at Storm Cauldron to, to verify that. But there are actually lots of really interesting combos. Uh, yes, no, it it, uh, it it just allows you to replay an additional land on each of your turn, and whenever that land is tapped for mana, you return it to your hand. So oh, oh okay, I was thinking the each you can play an additional land. Not the additional mana. I was mixing it up right. with I think Gauntlet of Might. Ma- so mana flare thing. Yeah. Yeah. So this just so bounces it, your land, so you need the fast bond to continually replay them. Gotcha. Exactly. Yep. It's that's for six mana. It's a channel effect. Yep. Uh, mana crypt and mana vault and lion's eye diamond are unrestricted, but it's prosperity that actually makes those cards problematic, and prosperity is in visions. Yeah. So you can't quite build the prosperity black vise combo deck, uh, <laughs> but we we are allowing people and maze of Ith, strip mine and recall are all, all unrestricted. I did unfortunately have to restrict power artifact because with demonic consultation. Uh, available. I think Demonic Consultation enables more decks than than Power Artifact, but with Force of Will from Alliances, Power Artifact just gets a little bit out of hand, so that's restricted. <laughs> but but we, we, I mean, Consult really makes the Reanimator deck really strong and some other decks. That's cool. And Necropotence is restricted, but um, so it'll be a really interesting exploration of the format, and uh, I hope to see you there. Awesome. You know, I'm reminded of something that happened last year it's boy. It's almost more than a year ago now that I think about it. Anyway, the uh, you mentioning '96 and the exploration of old school through the ages reminds me of something that I did that my friends <laughs> kept chiding me for never mentioning on the show, and that is we had a weekend where we put together old school commander decks. Now, Steve, I know that you are not a commander aficionado, but some of our listeners are and, and might get a treat out of this. Yeah, uh, me and two of my close friends, Matt and Kirsten got together for a mini convention, put together commander decks for basically 94, and we were required to use the original Elder Dragons, so there were only five possible commanders. <laughs> nice. And that's very old school. But yeah. then we also put together decks for 96, as the event you're describing uh, here, adding yeah. in up to Mirage. Did you, did you, I was wondering, did you go up to Mirage? We yeah. did. We went up to Mirage. And the experience was fantastic. Um, yeah. There, I mean... I don't need to go into much more detail, but I can tell you that deck building for the commander format using these really old school card up. pools is really interesting. 
It pushes you in different directions. It stresses things like the politics of the format because there are there are only a select few really broken things you can do. Unlike Commander today, you can right. put basically the most broken combos you can, and they're not they're not that great. They're that, not necessarily game that broken. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, power power arm uh, power artifact plus basalt monolith is one of them. Yeah, that's a game ending right. play. But you have to have a third card with it, and it's vulnerable right. to disruption and counter magic. So lots and pyroblast, yeah. red blast, all that. Yeah, so disenchant. I, I just want to throw that in there for people who are you looking know, for something new to do. That the old well, school commander is an awesome thing. I can attest uh, firsthand. Well, I've said this before, but from a purely game balance, environment balance, diversity set of considerations, ninety five is m- old school. Ninety five is much better than old school ninety three, ninety four. Yeah, you know it now. I'm not a fan of unrestricted necropotence. It's possible that you could play it with unrestricted necropotence. It's not your, not like you're necroing into Yogmoth's Will and the Tendrils. <laughs> but the problem is the necropotence becomes a very polarizing card, and you 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 see the emergence of decks that are like the necropotence deck, the anti necropotence deck, and then the anti anti necropotence deck. <laughs> sure. So yeah. I really hate what necropotence does in terms of creating a fun open environment. But I I think that the 96 is even more open and fun because you get you know. You know, I've I've complained a lot about how horrible unrestricted strip mine is in ninety three ninety four because <laughs> it just makes tempo decks just totally dominant. I mean, there's no top eight that you can look at that doesn't have unrestricted strip mine that isn't almost like thirty two of thirty two strip mines. <laughs> but when you get to ninety six, strip mine is so much less oppressive, uh, just because people are doing things like mana crypt decks, you know, and and so strip mine is less brutal. And also, there's so many specialized lands like Glacial Chasm and Kiljoran Outpost that make Stripmine actually better. But um, but I, I I think it's a much more open and diverse environment. I mean, in particular, Ice Age. When you once you get Jester's Cap and things like that, then decks like the deck just don't become that you know annoying. Right. <laughs> you right. know, they, 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 a lot of, and then a Dystopia out of alliances. And, you know, the Reanimator deck is really strong against control strategies, and there's a bunch of other things you can do. So it just becomes a much more diverse. You get more combo decks. They're not as efficient as modern combo decks, is to your point, but they're still fun to play. Yep. Um, just a couple more announcements. Udo Games in Berkeley, we've got two vintage events in March. We've got one on March 4th and another at the end of March on March 25th. So I'll be at those. Um, support uh, Vintage in the Bay. Kevin, do you have any vintage events coming out your neck of the woods? We well, unfortunately, uh, timing-wise, there's just this weekend's, which is only a few days from now, uh, <laughs> vintage event monthly at RIW. So it's kind of not worth mentioning since the show will probably only go up uh, a day or two before. But right. just a reminder: monthly vintage at RIW, and I have interestingly enough, I'm in the time of year where I have a few invitational events I'm going to. So not other stuff cool. that is uh publicly available at the moment but i will be traveling around to play vintage mostly with team serious folks for the next couple of uh weeks which is fun oh those are always a good time i'm i'm so <laughs> i'm so uh envious of you so uh <laughs> um just final announcement for us um by the time this is shortly after this airs the history of vintage schools of magic 2012 article should be live and at this point, I've got almost all the articles in the queue. In fact, there's only two articles out of the 25 chapters that have yet to be written. So I'm in the home stretch of this long developing gestating series. And I, I announce it both so folks can take a look at it, but also because I'm at the point now where I, I really need feedback from you, our, our listeners. And because once all these articles are done, and as I said, 
uh, once the 12, 2012 article is up, there will only be five articles left to publish. Three are, are done and under editing, two left to be written. I'm going to rely on folks to give me feedback so I can go back and do one final round of edits and then we'll put it into the book. But I need people to look at it and tell me if I'm missing cool stories, important tournaments, anecdotes, uh, you know, insights into deck construction or sideboarding that either deserve a spot in the main narrative or in the end notes. There's plenty of space for that because once it's published in paper, there's no going back. I can't, I can't edit it. So <laughs> I really am at the stage now where I really want people to go into it and if there's something that doesn't make sense, you know, if I've made a mistake somewhere or there's a, a factual correction, I'm definitely going to rely on the community to crowdsource some of those gaps. So I'm beginning that that here. <laughs> awesome. And just one more thing, banner restricted announcements. Five days from our current recording, meaning probably only a few days from when you can hear this, February 12 is the next banner restricted announcement. Now, we have no major expectations from a vintage standpoint. If there's any vintage action, my guess is it would be a, a somewhat overdue unrestriction, the likes of which we've talked about. Well, it's going on several months ago now, but that's probably the only thing to expect. What, wouldn't you say so, Steve? Yeah, it's we're probably not going to see much, but yeah. um, but they but just had a, yeah, you never know. They just had a major shakeup in standard. There could be action in modern based on the pro tour. Although Aaron Forsyth way, was, was quick yeah. to tweet after the pro tour that uh, a deck winning is not equal to a, an immediate banning in modern, but that that's not a guarantee. And otherwise, legacy and vintage have no real fireworks going on at the moment, metagame wise. So there's really no uh, go to action that we expect right now. But who knows? Yeah, you know, I don't follow Modern, I don't follow Pro Tours, but there was a lot of commotion around the Lantern deck in in Modern. So much so that I ended up taking a look at the the finals match on Mm -hmm. Twitch, the Twitch video, and I watched the last game. And boy, that that is a cool deck. Uh, (laughs) And and the the Twitch stream commentary was so brutal. But the, the dynamics of it were just something you would see in old school or vintage. It was on one side of the board, a Blood Moon. On the other side of the board, a grafting, a, a um, ensnaring bridge in play against uh, <laughs> against young pyromancer and his tokens. Yep. And the the lantern player had the bridge in play and academy ruins to recur, you know, and, and welding jar to recur lanterns and and do shenanigans, and then eventually got a tesseret out and won. I was like, boy, this sounds you know structurally familiar or functionally <laughs> familiar. <laughs> yeah. and I, I thought it was great. I, I don't know why people don't like that. I, I love the idea of decks that take away win conditions. Uh, I find that entertaining. A lot more entertaining than watching linear aggro decks go at it or mid-range aggro decks. <clears throat> well, you and I are of similar opinions, but it's pretty clear based on the community response that Lantern is the antithesis of what certain people want in Magic. That's that's. I mean, it's not even like it's that bad. I mean, it's not like. A, I mean, there are so many worse decks. Like Stasis decks are far more annoying. Prison decks. <laughs> it's a prison deck, but I mean, all you have to do is play a Stony Silence, and the deck is 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 cronked, right? I mean, it's just. <laughs> yeah. Well, just, I don't mean to. Yeah, I mean, I don't mean to say that there's no answer to it, and I'm pretty I assume sure that, that Stony Silence players, is legal. <laughs> it is, and I'm sure that Lantern players. Uh, throughout the world will readily point to things that they don't want to play against I mean, it's not like the deck's unstoppable or anything so uh, but that's a debate for another another show <laughs> at this point fair enough <laughs> so we'll see yeah let's move on to our scenarios
So, Steve, the scenarios are something that we love to talk about on this show. We've had a couple of great episodes in the past. This is far past at this point, but it's the sort of thing that we've fallen out of the habit of doing a little bit. So we wanted to try and try and spice things up again, do a little bit of a return to form with our show and talk about some examples. Yeah, we've talked for a long time about bringing this this episode uh, back. Exactly. But we just, it's been kind of a slog to get to it. And I think in the new year, you and I made a commitment that we would do it. Um, <laughs> in the effort to try and, and find scenarios, though, I think I was reminded why why it's fallen out of disuse. And part of it is that you know, the vintage format has just changed so dramatically since when we started our podcast. And the kinds of high-intensity, high-stakes, deep decision-making where you kind of select one branch that's largely mutually exclusive from another branch of play <laughs> right. just doesn't is, – it's harder to find in contemporary vintage these days, especially with the kind of the rise of Tempo decks and Xerox decks and Hate Bears and Graph Diggers Cage decks. So, you know, the, the decline of Big Blue and, and Tendrils combo-type decks means that there are fewer decks in the upper tiers of the vintage format – that have these kinds of deep considerations of lines of play, which is unfortunate. But nonetheless, we were still able to find some really cool scenarios. So, Kevin, why don't you explain, for those of you who, who have never heard a scenario episode before, or <laughs> who have but forgotten the setup, explain what the setup for this and how we structure these this, this uh, segment. Sure, sure. So, the idea is that one of us will present a scenario, and then we will analyze the possible lines trying to identify the best play or sequence of plays that result from this starting point. Some of them are opening hand scenarios, like you're sequencing your first turn, even deciding whether to mulligan. And some of them are deep within a game, you're faced with a board state and trying to make a choice. And our overall goal here is to elucidate some some fundamental principles of certain interactions, as well as just some methods and modes of thinking through scenarios in a vintage context that will or the variations of which will come up relatively commonly and, and help people you know improve their play with a certain deck yeah I, I think that's true i also think that the best scenarios are those that there's no clear answer and that there are good arguments on both sides oh yeah those are always fun so starting from the per, per, <clears throat> preparation for this episode we reached out on twitter and got a couple of good responses that we'll use here. We've also called some of these from other folks' Twitter scenarios and some of our our own tournament experience. Right. So our first example comes from our Twitter search, and credit <laughs> goes to Peach for his contribution here. So, Steve, do you want to set this one up, or shall I? Sure. This is, this is a pretty familiar uh, setup for players who have been playing Vintage heavily in the last couple of years. It's an opening hand scenario, and uh, Peach apparently had this occur to him in the course of a tournament where he had this opening hand. It's a great opening hand, so let me read it off to you, and then we can begin. I'll read it twice, and you can begin contemplating the issue. So the opening hand is a Volcanic Island, Mox Pearl, Black Lotus, Monastery Mentor, Time Walk, Mental Misstep, and Pyroblast. Now, at first glance, this is just a broken hand, and you can do lots of cool things, but let me just warn you. Peach said that he lost the game with this opening hand. So it's mm. a little trickier than it seems. <laughs> <laughs> and it, there are a lot of different factors to evaluate. There's some intuitive play, but there's also some counterintuitive play. And it also kind of reveals what you value, mm. right? 
Good point. Are you trying to maximize the number of tokens you want to generate? Are you trying to protect mentor? What are you trying to do? So, Kevin, I'll let you start. You know, let's just, well, when it comes to opening hands, I actually think the easiest place to start is just what are the options before us? So, what are the major options? And then we can begin trying to hone in or narrow down the main options. Sure. Well, so this hand has potentially five mana on turn one, a land, a mox, and a lotus. There are two counter spells, misstep and pyroblast. And then there are two quote unquote proactive spells, mentor and time walk. Clearly, you have enough mana to cast Mentor and Time Walk on turn one. However, you are bottlenecked in that you cannot cast Mentor, Time Walk, and Pyroblast on turn one. So (laughs) if it's your goal to... So there's some hierarchy here. You you are clearly incentivized to play Lotus and Mentor. That's just um, one of the more broken things that Mentor can do, especially in Vintage. And you have uh, flashing lights pointing you in that direction here. It's a high-value play. However... As soon as you get one level deeper than that, you have to start considering what can your opponent do to interact with Mentor when it's on the stack? What can you do to maximize the Mentor once it's in play? And (laughs) how should you prioritize those things? So uh, these are variations on what you alluded to. Are your goals simply to resolve Mentor? Is it your priority to maximize how many tokens you can get? Is it your priority to just be as broken as possible? That kind of thing. So those are the things I'm thinking of when I look at this hand. And I quickly... Given my experience with Mentor, I quickly go down one particular line, which is ensuring that Mentor resolves, this is me personally, while leaving yourself open to the most broken thing, which is Mentor plus Time Walk. Right. So that's my personal priority. I think that's right. I think there's the hidden option here, or the Mm -hmm. the option that's less visible is that that there is a, a real case to be made for not playing Mentor at all. Mm. in the early game. And for most of the experience that we've had in Vintage, Mentor has been an unrestricted card. You know, it comes out in early 2015, and it's only just recently restricted last fall. Given that Mentor is a singleton, its value is so much more strategically. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think the pilot really has to consider the risk of it not either not resolving or being too easily removed, right? As opposed to a game state later in the game, if you're a skillful control pilot, where you can actually leverage it better and protect it better as a finisher. So I think that's really what this hand is. I mean, I think the obvious sequence is what you outlined. Land, Lotus, Mentor. Protect it with pyro, protect the Mentor from a force of will with Pyroblast, mm-hmm. and then protect the Pyroblast from misstep. But there are any number of ways in which that can go wrong, right? Sure. So sure. If, you're, if your opponent has a force of will, and a misstep, you've lost Lotus, Mentor, Pyroblast, <laughs> and and uh, misstep, and you can't even time walk this turn. And if they have like a wasteland, you're just toast. <laughs> so, um, and similarly, sorry, you, it's not that you can't misstep, it's that they will have dealt with yours, and you won't be able to have resolved any of your important things. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, similarly, if you get to that point, and your mentor resolves, despite all of that, because you've got two counters, right? then you're sitting with to sitting duck. You're, well, you're sitting with Volcanic Island, Mox Pearl, and Time Walk, plus a Mentor in play, and you've made no monks. And your you, Vulcan... Well, you can still play you, the you, Pearl you, after that. Make yeah, one you can monk. play the Pearl and get one monk, and then you have... You're, you're basically just totally exposed. Your opponent yeah. can have Swords to Plowshares, even Lightning Bolt, Bolt takes care of that Mentor, exactly. and you're left with... You got one monk out of that whole trade. Now, 
it, you could it, make uh, the case that that's still a desirable result, of course, right. because you've you've spent three cards or four cards out of their hand, which is not without value. But to your point, in the big picture, that's not a good usage of a monastery mentor, especially if it's in a blue mirror, which tends to hinge around this card. And it's your only one. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and I think that's really the, the the fundamental question here is whether you even go for the mentor. In a, in a world with four mentor or three mentor, there's no question you throw out the mentor. <laughs> but in a world where you're not going to draw another mentor, yeah, and you probably have no way to recur this mentor, I think the, the risks are just really high. So, I think maybe we skipped a step earlier on because we've been talking about this with the assumption that it's a blue mirror and that's because peach set out the scenario right in a blue mirror in, in match. a blue mirror yes if the if it's an unknown matchup and you're in game one say on the play which is we like to talk about yeah that's the only way it could be unknown i would say <laughs> arguably right um does that change things for you well it's still incredibly vulnerable right i mean if your opponent goes workshop mocks walking ballista <laughs> yeah. your mentor is toast you have one monk what have you really gotten out of it, really? Uh, and it, you're sitting there with pyroblast, misstep, and time walk. It's <laughs> yep. it's 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 really risky. I mean, there's almost it's almost so. Yeah, go I, ahead. I, I need I, I feel the need to interject here because you do have an answer to that particular line, the ballista line, and that is pyroblast. You, that's true. If you go mentor walk, yeah. you're untapping with volcanic island and, and pearl plus pyroblast, misstep, and a, and a mystery card. That's you a very can, good point. You can't stymie the place to play against yeah, shops. Right. I guess what I'm suggesting is if you're facing against shops, do you really want to do that? Well, you're actually, what you're going to do is you're against shops. You're going to play Lotus, Mentor, Pearl, Volk, Time Walk. Yes. So that's, but. but so you're incentivized the, to, do, to basically do the most broken thing you can against shops, especially because you're you, on the play. But you also want to get another draw at it. I mean, the fundamental flaw in this hand against shops is that it has uh, one land and that <laughs> land is a dual land that can be easily wastelanded. This is if true. they have a revoker and a wasteland, which is a very reasonable thing for them to have, a common occurrence, yep. you're you're dead in the water. You you against shops you're almost entirely dependent on drawing a useful business spell off the top on your turn one. A cantrip or a yes, mana. Yeah. Exactly. And a mana's not even that good, because then you're well, still dependent on drawing business. A fetch <laughs> you, land or a basic would be fine. It would be nice, yes. Yeah. But you really, as want, you put it, you really want preordain, right? Preordain into land is the is probably the perfect there. Yes, ex- exactly. <laughs> so you're still, it's a, you're still not um, guaranteed to have any kind of success against shops, even with a turn one mentor walk, because let's say you draw the perfect thing. Okay, Ancestral Recall is probably the perfect thing, but let's say you draw a more reasonable preordain. You make a second monk play a land because you're going to need it and pass the turn with a Pyroblast misstep up. If your opponent does something that interacts with your mentor, you can respond with Pyroblast just to, to to buff its toughness. You could even do it twice in the Pyroblast plus misstep world, which is not bad. But being right. empty-handed with four monks against shops on turn two is still not necessarily a recipe for success in no, the modern metagame. No, it's not. The shops can still just yeah. overcome you. Yeah, they can play a creature and a steel overseer and then block your army. Yeah, indefinitely. Exactly. And um, so you know, I, I imagine that most players are probably just baked into the natural intuitive play. But I, I I'm really skeptical of how often that's going to win. You know, probably more than fifty percent, but not as much as someone just might think. Yes. You know, it's, there's so many things that can go wrong. Uh, if I think the fundamental 
hinge point is that if you are compelled to use the pyroblast, you're off the time walk, which mm-hmm. means that things can go really bad. Yes, definitely. <laughs> and, and that means that you're you're so vulnerable to getting wastelanded. Let me read to you what actually happened to Peach. He said that he went land Lotus Mentor. His opponent forced the Mentor, and Peach played Pyroblast. And then he played the Mox, generating a Monk. Then his opponent played Swords to Plowshares. Mm-hmm. And of course, he misstepped, but then the opponent misstepped back. So he has two tokens. He walked, swung for four, drew blank. The opponent pyromancered, token go, and then drew better. Yeah. You know, it it's it really is. I think there is a strong case. So here's the here's the, the trick though. If you decide not to go, so I want to. I just want players to hear how he lost, and it, it's easy to understand, right? Force misstep and plow is more than you can protect here, and all you're left with is two tokens for all this investment. Right. But if you decide to go the other main route, the one that I was trying to surface, which is not playing Mentor and demonstrating restraint, holding up the Pyroblast <laughs> and the misstep, or maybe just going time walk and then seeing what you can do. Are you going to play the Lotus? Mm-hmm. Very are tricky. You- Very tricky. Because if your opponent force of wills time walk, are you okay with that? Right. Do you want right. to fight over that at the cost of Lotus plus Pyroblast? Pyroblast, that's a big investment, yeah. and you haven't and, gotten anything out of it. And given that your Lotus can so readily cast Mentor, even as, you know, as soon as the next turn, I think the answer is no. I think you don't play Lotus. I, think I agree. The, unless you have sussed out something about the matchup that points so, to your opponent having Ancestral or Tinker or Outcome on turn one, which seems highly unlikely based on just what they pitched a Force of Will, then. I would say you need to keep that Lotus for a future investment. So would you, it seems like the three main options are the the sequence Peach took. Number two, playing Volcanic Pearl Time Walk, seeing what you draw. And number three, just playing Volcanic and go. (laughs) Well, Which of those in a a kind of blue mirror would you do? I would definitely do what Peach did. Um, I think it's muscle memory, and I think I would do it without too much consideration. Which is why I, well, I think I'm glad we're talking about it here and now because I may not appreciate how vulnerable that how line is. Yes, I would be. So that's the thing. I'd be inclined to want to go the time walk route, but then then you're using your pearl without getting the mentor the benefit of generating a monk. Absolutely. I, I don't know. It, it, in some ways, this is actually a fundamental role question. Yep. That goes back to assignment of role. If you are in the mode of, I want to maximize my ability to control, be in a control role, then option two or three are better than one. Because option yep. two and three maximizes your ability to deploy counter magic. The time walk could draw you another counter spell. So the time walk theoretically could maximize your ability to control. But certainly holding up the Volk and possibly even playing Lotus to pay for Flusterstorm or something is probably the most controlling play. Mm-hmm. So it really depends on what you think the proper role is in that matchup. And that may in turn depend upon the specifics of the matchup and the opponent you're facing. Yep. Ex- excellent point. And I couldn't agree more. I don't know. Did Peach ever mention if he knew his opponents uh, or yeah, had thoughts after the fact about <laughs> what he would have done differently? I didn't, I didn't ask him. All okay. I saw was that he said that it was a real beating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is so, a good example too of how, of how cards line up. I mentioned the, the Redux old article in a past episode recently, and this is a perfect example of how things line up in Vintage, and this hand, which at first might look like an embarrassment of riches, is not that difficult to stymie by a traditional Jeskai deck, for example. Especially the way decks are designed these days. So, mm-hmm. 
Okay, well let's um let's move on to the next the next uh, uh, scenario. But that was a great opening one. Mm-hmm. Now, in our search for scenarios, we have we want to make sure we're not getting into a pattern of using just the same decks or even the same sets of scenarios. That is like mulligan decisions or opening hand sequences. Right. So we found a really good one. I found a really good one on Twitter by Pascal Grossman. Kevin, is that how you pronounce his name? I would. <laughs> okay. Why don't you set this up for us? All right. This is a workshop versus Grixis type scenario. Mid-game. Now, mid-game. So you have in play three mana sources that are all tapped. An ancient tomb, an ancient tomb, and a soul ring. You're the workshop player. You're the workshop <laughs> player, clearly. You also have three creatures that are untapped and ready to attack or do other things. They are a revoker, naming Deathrite Shaman, a Steel Overseer, and a Steel Overseer, all of whom have two plus one plus one counters on them. Including the Revoker. Yes. All three of your creatures have plus one plus two plus one plus one counters on them. <laughs> it's also worth noting that your Revoker is, despite the counters, still only a two three. And that is because of what your opponent has. Your opponent is tapped out landwise. A C, two Volks, and a strip. They have Deathright Shaman, which is why you named it with which Revoker. Is revoked. Yep. And they have Jace Telepath Unbound on seven counters, presumably because he just shrank your Phyrexian Revoker on their prior turn. So, in review, you've got three creatures ready to attack or and do his, other his graveyard, things. His graveyard, by the way, is F- Force of Will. I think, what's the other card there, Kevin? Oh, Force of Will, Treasure Cruise, and Ancient Grudge, yes. Ancient Grudge, Decidedly yes. relevant that <laughs> yeah. th- th- your opponent does not have access to green mana as long as Revoker on Deathrite is... is currently controlling the situation um so you've got three creatures all of which have two counters on them your steel overseers are active so you could be attacking with them or tapping them to activate so the question is oh and your opponent's at 13 light so that frames the question what do you do with all of your creatures this turn vis-a-vis attacking jace attacking your opponent Attacking with all creatures or a subset and activating one of your one or both steel overseers or something we haven't considered. <laughs> and and the blue made the Grixis pilots uh, lands are all tapped down, so they can't do anything. There will be and, no response save possible blocks by Deathrite right. Shaman. <laughs> right. Now, what I thought the reason this I, I thought this was a great scenario is because Pascal opened a poll on Twitter when he posted this, and uh, twelve people voted, and the votes were split. Uh, evenly among fo- all four options, <laughs> so I thought this would be perfect for us to uh, to evaluate. But I don't want to present his poll options yet because I want to give you sure. a chance to to you and I a chance to discuss what we see as the main options. Um, sure. So 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 I hope our listeners have a clear sense of this uh, of the complexity of the board state and and what's happening and what the, the salient options are. Um, and as Kevin said, the main immediate options appear to be you know whether you go directly. Uh, at the opponent, the, the the flipped tiny Jace, or you know, do some activations from Steel Overseer. Oh, there's one other detail I I didn't mention. Your hand is empty, zero cards, so you're all in here. Your opponent has one card in hand. Right, <laughs> and they and they're they're strip mine uh, two Volks and CR tap down. Mm-hmm. Um, so Kevin, what do you make of this scenario? I mean, this is a kind of scenario, you know, broadly speaking. You know the uh, the question of what you do with Steel Overseer, especially when you are getting close to lethal, mm-hmm. is kind of a big one. Oh, absolutely. So, I think the baseline is 
do you have lethal on board right right <laughs> almost every turn of magic should should start at some point with can you you know you is your now? opponent dead on board if you attack with all your creatures at your opponent the most they can block is three damage one of your three three overseers they will take five so they're at 13 the most guaranteed well, damage well, the you've most got they to them can is block five. is the revoker uh no the revoker is only a two three because it's been shrunk by jace so it's actually your oh, smallest creature okay yeah got it so if you attack all three creatures at them, they're guaranteed to take at least five, possibly six, if they make a weird block and block the Revoker, which is not the most efficient. Right. So you cannot kill them. That, that's right. straight up. They're, they're not But dead. you can send them to eight. Yes. Attacking them straight out would be an investment in lowering their life total. So then that begs the next question, which is, is it more efficient in the long run to either attack Jace to reduce his likelihood of ultimating and or just get get the the you know the spell casting ability out of the way and or tapping your steel overseers in order to make a longer term investment in larger creatures so we can talk about what future turns might look like if nothing right. else changes but the sizes of your creatures you have 6 mana so almost anything you draw you can play immediately yes and in in that even considers their strip mine right if they strip yeah. you you can still play still basically play anything in the deck with Barring a five or six drop that might be in your main. They would have to grudge you and strip mine you to turn you off of that. Right. And also, given the number of plus one, plus one counters on your creatures, Deathrite Shaman is no no risk in combat. It's just going to be a chump blocker no matter what does. So let's say, so there are extremes of the spectrum, I would say, regarding their life total. If you attack with all your creatures now, they take five. They have the option of taking eight and going to five life if they just don't block a creature. That would immediately, such a thing would immediately telegraph that they have a way to remove your revoker to turn on their death. Can you, right, can right? you go over that one more time? I want to make sure I'm tracking. <clears throat> so, if you attack with all three of your creatures, right. it represents three plus three plus two, which is eight damage. They could take that. They're at 13 and they would live yeah. and they'd be at five. Right. That, that line of play on their part, not blocking with death right, right there, telegraphs yeah. that they have a way to interact with your revoker. Got it. So, you get information. Depending yes. on what they do. Because what that suggests is they valued keeping that death right around in right. order for it to use its mana ability in the future. Because you can't kill them, so they'll just suck it all up. Yeah. I mean, they could, they could, they could theoretically, he could, he could use the Tiny Jace's flashback ability to Ancient Grudge your Revoker. Yes. Right? Exactly. That is a possibility given that Jace has seven counters. And then he can start gaining life with Death Ride Shaman. Yeah. Or generating mana. Yeah. Either way. So in fact, in fact, he could flashback ancient grudge, strip mine you, and activate. And activate wait, death no, he right. doesn't have the green mana though to activate death right to gain life. Um, you could. Oh, that's true. It would have to come from another land. You're right. Yeah. Or another death right potentially. So what that what that translates to in my eyes is that if your plan is to make this game go multiple turns longer than attacking for the Jace, workshop pilot. Yes, for yeah. the workshop pilot, attacking Jace becomes an attractive option because. You're similarly guaranteed five damage on Jace, and he can, he will not be able to. Yeah, he will not be able to flashback Ancient Grudge, which would limit Jace to only his plus ability, at least on the following turn. And then, assuming nothing else changes, you're guaranteed to kill Jace on your next turn. <laughs> Again, yeah. assuming nothing else changes on uh, regarding your <laughs> opponent's spells. So the f- I think that was a good time to try and simplify this scenario by presenting the four options in the Twitter poll. Sure. Option one was attack all at Jace. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Option two was revoker at face, meaning attacking the pilot, the player, pumping twice. Yep. 
which is very attractive because then the the steel uh, overseers both become four four. Sorry, five five. Five fives, yeah, <laughs> yeah. For which for is, future turns, yep. Which could potentially be just lethal next turn. We can get back, come back to that. And then the fourth option was other. <laughs> <laughs> but there, one of the but, other options that's not on here is um, attacking Jace with one or two, and then pumping with the remainder. Yeah. Which to me, at least superficially, seems like the line I would gravitate towards. So the presence of Ancient Grudge in the graveyard really points towards, in my eyes, really points toward diminishing Jace. Because the flip side is, if you try to attack your opponent's life total, if you attack with all creatures without activating Overseers, you're guaranteed the five. You put them to eight, if they chump block, they can untap and then Ancient Grudge using Jace for two mana, one of your Overseers. They're at eight life facing down a seven power board yeah that would mean you're giving them at least one more turn as well as the two cards that they'll have access to from their hand you know you haven't disrupted their hand or or spells at all lots of things could go wrong from that standpoint they could have a lightning bolt also they could have another ancient grudge another death right all manner of things could go wrong there basically everything that's (laughs) in their deck that isn't dead is online right missteps and pyroblasts are the only things that are good for you at that point so I think that re- giving them that option and given that you have no cards in hand and you're playing off the top is it's very attractive to go after Jace to limit their options. The the problem is that if you just attack with two creatures of Jace, they can still block one and have four loyalty and flashback ancient grudge. That's right. So it requires you, you, you to go all three at Jace this turn in order to fully eliminate that option. That's that's the fundamental trick here, isn't it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> However, I would like to point out, though, that if you go that route and attack all your creatures at Jace, then you are setting up the fact that you're going to be in basically this a, a very position. similar sit position next turn, right? Right. You won't be able um, to win next turn. Uh, you, again, you're going to be facing you draw a, something. a very yeah. similar board, but you're going to be facing a Jace with only three loyalty. And that yeah. opens up some nice options. Because, again, assuming they don't play something out of their hand that changes the board... If Jace is at three loyalty and you've got a three three, a three three, and a two three, you get to attack two three threes at Jace and one at the player, or or Revoker plus one Overseer at Jace next turn plus a pump means Jace is guaranteed to die next turn. There are so many discrete actual options. See, see how this could play out. It's incredible. Yes. Uh, so I, maybe workshops actually have the deepest lines of play these days. <laughs> but it's, I mean, uh, you know, go go ahead, finish your. Your, your line of thought there. Yeah, so I think it, it, it comes down to how risk averse are you as a player, in my eyes. If you're banking on your opponent having access to just one more board affecting spell, even if it's just a lightning bolt, it, it makes doesn't, a lot of, it makes a lot of sense to go pump? after Jace. Well, okay, so if it's a lightning bolt, then pumping is, is highly relevant. But then that's the worst of all possible worlds if you take the most defensive stance, right? Well, because well, <laughs> be, well, be, I'm serious though, because yeah, because then if you take the most defensive stance and double pump right now and then swing with Revoker, then your this opponent is, gets well, then your opponent gets maximum choices because well, they get to decide. Then yeah. are they chumping? You can't kill them, so they can just say, "Hey, I'm not even going to chump with this." Here's, this uh, here's death something. Yeah, I'm sorry. There's just so many considerations. Let me let me introduce two considerations. Supposing so I think there is real value in trying to pump with one of the steel overseer. Yes. But clearly the problem that we've articulated is that 
if you only attack with two creatures, they can still keep Jace's loyalty enough to flashback Ancient Grudge. Yes. But if they do block, then the Revoker no longer has the same value. So if they grudge the Revoker, it doesn't really matter. They, they would not they would the Revoker. Pro- which, yeah. yeah, exactly. That was what I was in- inductively getting at, which is that they would remove one of the Steel Overseers, which is smaller, but has more potential for growth, for growing your team. So that may... that. That's an interesting. You're putting the ball in your opponent's court, but that's not a bad outcome. Mm-hmm. Just objectively speaking, that's not a bad outcome. Uh, what I want to get at, though, the second point is, I want to understand what kind of pressure you can do. So, so how how quickly just speed run? How quickly can you just finish your opponent off? So, if you were to throw all the creatures at your opponent mm-hmm. and they don't block, you've already pointed that you will be doing eight. Uh, eight, right? Um, well, let, let's see, three from each Overseer, six, and then seven, eight, two from the right Revoker, which puts them at five Yeah, with no obvious way to gain light. Um, that actually is an interesting option because it means that even if they block next turn, they're dead if you attack with all three, unless they flashback Ancient Grudge on one of your creatures. Mm-hmm. And if they do do that, they still have to block, killing their Deathrite Shaman, and They'll go to two, and they'll be dead the following turn unless they have another... Even if they have another removal, they'll still be dead the following turn. That's right. So so I think what you've cleared up is that even if you take your most aggressive life total line, you can't win until this two attack, turns. Yeah. next turn's attack, and then th- the following. three attacks, basically. Yes, three attacks from this moment. To <laughs> me, that... Leans points towards directly to the conclusion that it's better to <laughs> it's better to deny your opponent resources at this point because look what happens if you attack Jace all out right now and and uh, okay there's that's only one possible configuration but if you attack Jace right now you're denying Jace at four or five loyalty right now depending on your configuration of attack right, right. four loyalty means they can still flashback Ancient Grudge of course but that's at the, at the cost of Jace. At the cost of being able to reduce the power of one of your things and losing, essentially losing their Jace yeah. for so all time. Th- probably the all-out attack at Jace is the best for the long term right now because it gets Jace down to two loyalty, as I said earlier. Then his only mode next turn is a plus, and you're denying them the flashback on Ancient Grudge unless but, they just have a, a Tropical Island or access to so it. So that's, that's, that's a, a reasonable conclusion. And I'm not sure of this, but doesn't that add another attack step before you can actually win the game? So I believe it that w- it does. Yes, it would. It would require then four attacks from this moment. <laughs> attack so steps, not let's, three. Let's tease that out, though. So if you attack Jace with all your creatures and no pumps this turn, assuming they chump, because if they don't chump block, Jace is just straight up dead. Right. Right. It seems so to chump seems to force right a chump. Yeah, and and Jace will take five, going to two. Next turn, they start their turn with no death right and a Jace at two. So they have to deploy they'll something pl- out of... Well, they'll plus the Jace. De- yeah, de- right. They'll plus the Jace. the power of your Revoker again. Yep. So you'll be you'll be facing basically the same starting loyalty, or not loyalty, but power on your team. They pl- If they play something out of their hand, obviously we we can account for the, what those possibilities well, Jace, are. But Jace's power will be at... Loyalty will be at five again. No, Jace will be at, at three, because his okay. plus is plus one. I'm sorry. Right. Yeah. Right. So you'll be untapping with <laughs> with the same team you've got, and Jace on three... Now it has everything to do with what they do to a, a, a you know in fact the board at this point. But in a vacuum, you get to attack with one or two creatures at Jace and pump once or twice. 
Right. So this is turn two. Let's say you attack one creature at Jace, right. like you the still Revoker, have to attack Jace again. Yeah. And you attack one creature at them, though, and you pump with one Steel Overseer. You're hitting Jace for three, actually four off the Revoker. Uh, no, three off the no. Revoker. Yeah. yeah. You're hitting them for four with a Steel Overseer and making your Overseer's four fours. So they go to nine. Nine. You've got them killed next on the turn. next turn so because you've got attacks. four, four, and three. Yeah. So going at Jace right now, lowering, uh, narrowing their options, which it doesn't guarantee, but it increases the likelihood dramatically that your three creatures stay in play. And you get a pump next turn, which means you're you have them dead on board in two turns. I'm getting the strong sense that the further you analyze these branches out, the more that you can logically eliminate those some as inferior and actually lead to an, a pretty close certainty, a, an optimal line. The one variable that's hard to contend with is what your opponent might draw. Yeah. And I just think as a general way of dealing with that variable, we should just assume that any option that wins the game in more than th- in four attacks is inferior because it gives them then three more draw steps. Yes, and given that this is Grixis mana with Ancient Grudge, this this the chance may- of them getting a green is not low. It, yeah, yeah, that's true. Absolutely, it is. And also, it's also worth considering that simply Workshops is the better deck in almost in almost every context at drawing threats off the top two. That's true. So yes, we you, haven't given any consideration to what you might draw. Right. Your opponent is obviously drawing live with this kind with this mana configuration to a number of removal spells, and we have to assume they have access to that in our calculations. But we're also drawing live to every card in our deck. And if they don't strip us, then hangerbacks are coming down for six. <laughs> I mean being for three, excuse me. And uh ballistas are coming down for three, which is no small thing. So I think the fact that we're drawing live coupled with the fact that we know we're facing removal if we don't take a particular line against Jace, and (laughs) combined with the fact that we could still kill them in our third attack if they don't affect the board, all of that points to just going hard at Jace this turn, and then the mixed attack next turn being both an investment in killing Jace and reducing their life total and improving our longer-term team size, all of those things. We get a next turn is just this great cornucopia yeah, of, 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 of good results. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, f- focusing our attention or refocusing our attention on what we might draw, does that change our analysis in terms of maybe wanting to pump and be a little bit more aggressive? What happens if we just pump and attack with... Let's just, let's just look at that for a second. Okay. If we pump with... If we attack, let's say, with just Revoker, let's say we attack into Jace yeah. and see if they block. If he, if he does... If he doesn't block and you double... You use both Steel Overseer activations. The Revoker will be at five, uh, which no, no four. It'll four. be a four five this so, turn. Four five. Mm-hmm. This and both Steel Overseers will be four. Will be five, be five five. fives. Yep. And, and Jace will go to three loyalty. Three loyalty, so he could still flash back Ancient Grudge. Oh, sorry. So you, with no block, Jace will go to three with loyalty. No, with with no a chunk block. block, Jace will stay at seven. So he that that's six of one, half dozen of the other. It doesn't really yeah. affect this scenario. <laughs> so. Well, you if would they, probably not yeah, if attack they don't Jace. block it means they could cash Jace in for the flashback next turn which means which that you probably possible. which means you probably wouldn't even attack Jace with the revoker you would just attack the opponent's head because if you were going to do double pump interesting that's I'm, just I'm not 100% sure on that honestly well well there's is there a difference in this scenario between a, a meaningful difference between a Jace at 3 and a Jace at 7 not um, really because all we're looking at is one flashback there's well, it's not like there's 
another playable card in the graveyard. There's just Force, a Treasure Cruise, and an Ancient Grudge. That's... I agree. That's fair. It, so it becomes that, a very long-term consideration. It becomes a three right. and four turns from now consideration. Yeah, or two yeah. turns, like if they were to draw Brainstorm. They, so, assuming that there's no logical difference between Jace, Telebath, Unbound, with three loyalty and seven loyalty, if you were going to do the double pump, you would attack at the face with the Revoker. And and then you could do either two, you would do four damage if they didn't block, no damage if they do block. Yeah. But next turn, next turn, they would grudge one of your things, almost certain. Yep. And they, they would, would have probably a, be the revoker at that point. They would if they if let's go with both options. If they blocked, if if they blocked, then it wouldn't be the revoker. It would be one of the steel overseers, right? Yeah, probably. Yep. Hard to say, but if they if they if they did block, then um, they would still be at thirteen, and they would have presumably no creatures in play, and you could just attack for the win because you would have two five five steel overseers. And a no, that, I'm sorry. They would have grudged one of them. This over, so you'd have a five-five overseer and a six-five revoker. Or yeah. if they killed the revoker, you'd have two five-fives. Yeah. So, so the <laughs> most power you could have, assuming that the grudge gets flashed back with Jace, is eleven. Yes. If they exactly. blocked, they so would be still at thirteen. Survive. They would still survive. Now, but you're putting them under okay enormous so pressure. You're putting them under enormous pressure, right? It does, putting them to two life next turn, assuming they don't affect the board in any other way, is still a way of narrowing their options, right? It limits, it lim- starts to limit fetches and forces in a meaningful you, way. The most devastating thing that happened is one of them would be if they drew a DAC, Faden, mm. the turn after. So it's really hard to analyze this without writing it out. If If you were essentially to draw, put this in a spreadsheet, <laughs> and then list all the options, and then, and then, look all all the way down the branch of each possible sequence i think you when you get to the end of each of those you could then as i said look at them together juxtapose them and begin eliminating some as inferior and then narrow down there may be here 70 different endpoints from this position you know uh, setting aside the draws that you might draw and what they may draw just from this position with no new information there's probably 70 different endpoints (laughs) and and it's hard, really hard to analyze this on a podcast context, but I think we've made substantial progress. I, I don't know where you're, without having done the complete analysis where you actually write it all out and look at every possible you know permutation and branch from each line, right. what's your kind of instinctual answer? My instincts right now are to go all out at Jace right now yeah. to narrow their options. Without because doing a complete full analysis, that's where I would land as well. I, think I also I like think that. Right. Because I think that's actually best against the possible removal they could have in most contexts except Lightning Bolt. Right. Not pumping right. your team right now means they get more if, value out of Lightning Bolt. It would be top. really nice to see more of their of their deck, but it also turns off a lot of really dangerous things. Like, for example, if they get Time Walk, mm-hmm. draw Time Walk, ooh, things could get really nasty here. Oh, yeah. Right? I mean, that's a good point. I mean, or like Demonic Tutor. So I think, I think, Taking out the Jace is probably the safest play in terms of narrowing the value of any of their draws. And the reason I'm inclined towards that position, the main reason is because attacking them at the he- at their head does not actually save any attack steps. <laughs> if yeah. it saved one attack step, then I would be all for it. But I, I actually think that that the fact and- that you've reached that conclusion is one that we should have probably started with. I mean, I know you started with it pretty early, but. I think that might be basically the tier two the, the, is 
the decisive. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Are they dead on board now? Okay, then how quickly can I kill them? Right. Is probably a reasonable methodology. And the fact that we <laughs> we got to the point where attacking Jace now doesn't lose you any turns in a in a vacuum. Right. is, I think, a very important realization. And the other thing that's interesting to consider is, assuming they do not block now, because if you throw everything at the, the Jace, they're not going to, it would be foolish, um, then whatever you draw is going to be, is going to be better if you, if you use the Seal Overseer's next turn. Because oh, if you draw a Ravager or a Ballista, you know, you're still getting the same clock speed in terms of it's killing them, um, but it will just gain more value. You know, it it doesn't actually slow you down anything anyway. So yeah, that's a fair point. Good. Very well, interesting. Scenario. I like this one. And, yeah. you, know, you and I have, have joked a, a number of times in the past about combat math uh, in vintage. <laughs> and we, you know, we do that tongue firmly in cheek, but this is definitely a good example of the, just the immense diversity of combat math in the workshop deck and in others, oh but God. also especially in the face of steel overseer. <laughs> All let's right, move let's on to move. our third scenario then. So, Sounds good. Okay, so uh, this is a interesting mana decision from a Jeskai standpoint. Steve, did this come <laughs> up from actual tournament play on your side? This came up from the last... So I have literally played, I think, one match this year on the Vintage League, and this is <laughs> the one match I played. And this was game three of the match. All right. I was playing uh, Jeskai Mentor, uh, Jeskai Mentor against a workshop player and this is game three. Oh. And to set it up though, my mana configuration is that I one I run one Arid Mesa, three flooded strands, and three uh scalding tarns as fetch lands. And primarily the Mesa is there as a counter tactic against Sorcerer Spyglass. Okay. Sorcerer Spyglass. So so go ahead. You please present this. Okay, so your opening hand on the draw on game three right. against shops is Arid Mesa and Strip Mine, Swords to Plowshares, Preordain, Preordain, Dig Through Time, Snapcaster Mage. Right. Allow me to summarize so in a different way. You have two lands, yes. an Arid Mesa and a Strip Mine. You've got Plow, two Preordains, a Dig, and a Snap. Now, the, the, it's important to also mention my basic land configuration. Main deck, I have a basic Plains, an Island, and a Mountain. So okay. the Mesa, can, as well as a pair of Tundras and a pair of Volcanic Islands, so the Mesa can find any land in my deck except for <laughs> the strip mine in hand or the basic island. Okay. So you're on the draw against shops. And I think this is one of those scenarios that we need to start, this you know, opening hand scenarios, that we need to start with a baseline of do you even keep right. this hand? Right. And then, if so, what's your plan for what your you first do? turn? Yes. Right. So Steve, I don't know the answer to either of these questions. So I will. <laughs> <laughs> I, but I think that the answer to the first requires you to analyze the second meaning is if this hand is keepable you need to have a plan for what you're going to do and you need to have some contingencies for what they might do right since you're on the draw because clearly if they have something like um ancient tomb thorn of amethyst then your options are severely narrowed right that goes that goes without saying in most workshop scenarios a lot significantly depends on what they might do the strip mine could be very potentially valuable definitely but if they go workshop um, foundry inspector, then the strip mine isn't quite as valuable, or maybe it is more valuable. <laughs> well, it it's, I depends mean, on how you look at it. it. But let, so yeah. let's talk about that. Uh, but let's let's get past a baseline threshold here. What are your options, even given these seven cards, assuming that they just say land go? I mean, <laughs> in a in a total perfect world, Which what are your they would options? Never do. Yeah, yeah. Well, 
your options are to use, assuming you don't draw another land, mm-hmm. you can either break the Arid Mesa for a Tundra or a Volcanic Island and play Preordain, or you can leave it up doing nothing mm-hmm. and or just strip mine them, or you can fetch a, a Plains and cast Plow. That's it. I would say I agree with you there. So you're Arid Mesa into a dual land for Preordain, and there are two choices on dual lands. Arid Mesa into basic planes for swords, Arid Mesa for nothing, say go, and or strip, mine. strip mine them. Which, I mean, it's, uh, technically strip mine go is also an option, but it's probably the least desirable of all those possible outcomes. Really depends, though. Yeah. I mean, if they go if they go Workshop Trinosphere, it might not be the worst. <laughs> uh, but Okay, fair, fair. I mean, it, of course, it would depend on who draws out first, but um, so, or if they go strip, if they go workshop s- sphere of resistance, the strip mine might be okay. Yeah, but so, it really depends. So you've laid out a couple of possible uh, involving spheres there. If they play a, a two or three mana land and land a sphere, then your options are been narrowed, right? Your options are down yep. to land go. It could be either land and pass or aggressively strip mining them. How do you feel about aggressively strip mining a workshop player when they just played a? <laughs> a sphere on turn one well it's better than whether if they play a creature because if they play a creature then you're actually giving them a tempo advantage agreed yes i think so, we can completely rule out strip mining them if they play a creature on one right i, I can't imagine a scenario where that's a winning line in the long run right i mean obviously if, they if, go, if you're tra- if you're yeah. clairvoyant and they only have one land then yes but on average that is just a losing tactic but i agree with you it's it's not optimal yeah. even if they um I mean, the strip part of Stripmine's role is to take out their best lands, and unfortunately, Workshop decks these days don't crutch very hard on Workshop. Right. You know, back in the day, if you took out Workshop, if they just go Workshop Sphere, they might may, may they might not again in the near term be in a position to play their Smokestack or their Lodestone Golem. Right. But that's not how Workshop decks are designed these days. Because those decks were those decks hinged around four and five mana cards. Right. So if they, but that brings me back to my question though: if they play. Ancient Tomb Thorn, are you seriously considering stripping them? Probably not. <laughs> My position is no. I, I agree with you. Strip mines strip mine is not really in the deck these days for aggressive uses, especially not against workshops. Most of the time you're gonna end up being worse as a result. So I would say if they have a a, a sphere of any flavor really on turn one, you're probably not going to strip them. Then the question becomes do you even put a strip mine into play versus an Arid Mesa? I would posit that having the Arid Mesa in play is a better long-term investment than having the strip mine in play, even if you're doing nothing with it immediately. Right. Because it gives you more flexibility, especially if you draw another land on your second or third turn for how you fetch to play a one-mana spell on turn two. And you're going to wish you had played Arid Mesa if you draw a Scalding yeah. Tarn, for example, on your next turn. Now, of course, if you draw a la- another land, then the strip mine in some ways becomes more attractive because you know you can dig out from under a sphere. Um, but if it's a fetch land and you're putting yourself in a position to fetch two usable basics, right? if you draw Scalding Tarn and you have access to fetching Plains Island, then I think that's the perfect response to a turn one thorn in this scenario. So in, not in- playing the strip mine? Well, I mean, not. it has everything to do with whether or not you draw the Scalding Tarn on turn one. Right, right. <laughs> well, if you don't draw till turn two, then it's a different... Exactly. And if you're going to yeah. draw a dual land on your second or third turn, then I am I think I'm with you. I'd rather have played the strip mine out to get it wasted in the long run. <laughs> that too. So yeah. it, it's very, it's very draw dependent at that point. So let's say they go thorn on turn one, you draw a not land 
let's say, I think I would play Ancient Tomb and say go. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Arid Mesa and say go. If you draw a land, though, then it depends on what that land is. If it's another fetch, I'm still playing Arid Mesa and saying go. If it's a dual land, though, I think I'm still playing Arid Mesa and saying go. Yeah, I think in every scenario, if they played a, a sphere on one, I'm just Arid Mesa go. You're still set up to play either Plow or Preordain on turn two, and with a lot more information on turn two, of course. But you might be way behind. So that's the other thing. Yeah. We've made all these. Yeah. We, yeah, we've made all these plans for what we're going to do with our lands. But the, the 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 truth of the matter is, if if they have Thorn on turn one, you're in a bad way in this game. It could go very and bad it, very quickly. You know, if in the NYSE last year, I, I had played a game where I, my opponent just exploded on turn one. I can't remember whether they played a sphere on turn one, but if if the workshop player has like a hand that just empties the, empties their hand, yeah. You may really need to plow on turn one. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so then that brings me into the other half of the scenario, really, is that what creatures would they play on turn one that you would need to you plow? plow? Yeah. And I think it's pretty clear that a inspector, if they go workshop inspector, go, I think you're heavily incentivized to plow that inspector right there. Even though it cuts you off from playing any blue spells, possibly, mm. in the near term. So, so you're skipping ahead to fetching a basic planes versus a tundra, right? Because fetching a tundra yeah, is, is on your list of possibilities. That's true. But you've properly identified that that's a very risky play, because one wasteland it means is. you might, not, never, might never play a spell this game. Yeah, but it might you might have to. It might, it might be a calculated <laughs> risk you have to take. Right. I mean, if you draw Ancestral Recall off the top, I, I know that's <laughs> not just a one-of, but still, that's the kind of thing that would incentivize you to, to reconsider your plan. Um, I, I have to say that, you know, in this game, I don't remember exactly how it played out, but in, in the immediate first couple turns mm-hmm. but what did happen was i think my opponent just won on turn three i mean basically he did the whole like ravager ballista like second and third turn and yeah. just won yeah and it's it's frustrating how fast <laughs> the workshop deck can win well and, and and this hand i did end up keeping this hand but the only reason i kept it is because i wanted to see how it would play out yeah. i was too curious <laughs> i wasn't as invested as winning but i i think ultimately this may just be a mulligan the strip mine just doesn't have enough value. Yep. It's a colorless mana source. And so it's kind of a red herring, right? Definitely. And, and also, you've got Dig Through Time and Double Preordain. And Snapcaster, which are... La- the, the Snapcaster and, and Dig are late game, later ter- game yeah. plays. They don't have any value here. And the preordain has dimi- second Preordain has diminishing returns. Yep. So so I, I think that the first question you originally framed at the beginning is, do you mull? I think you have to mulligan this. Yeah, well... I think we were. I was getting there through this other line of of analysis, but I think I agree with your conclusion. If they have, if they have land thorn on turn one or any other sphere, you're you're in a bad way. You're just a slow rolling yeah. hand that's not I, good. I, actually, I think what happened was he went workshop mox mox mm-hmm. and played. I don't. I think he played. I actually I don't remember exactly what it was, but. The, the Ravager definitely used those two Moxen and the, the turn three Ballista to win the game. <laughs> oh, jeez, yeah. I mean, that's rough. Yeah. I mean, you've got one plow to help disrupt that kind of line, but as we said before, if they've got turn one Inspector, you're heavily incentivized to plow that, which means yep. they can still just follow up with, with Ravager Ballista and go nuts. And if they have a mixture of creatures and spheres, then your plow is just hopelessly overmatched i would say almost any creature yep. plus a thorn means this hand becomes very bad very quickly right yeah and the in the way that the workshop decks are designed now one plow is not enough you know i do have a lot of by force but this deck is this hand is not going to be able to cast by force anytime soon i wonder what your thoughts are about your mana configuration 
given this particular result. Does Arid Mesa, is, is the presence of Arid Mesa versus a, a Flooded Strand or a Scalding Tarn the thing that pushes this hand into unkeepable? Or is it just a combination of other factors? Meaning, That's an interesting have you question. been punished for yeah. playing the Arid Mesa version of your well, mana base? Well, this, <laughs> well, you might present this as evidence of that. That's why I'm conclusion. asking. I, I'm not certain, uh, but I don't. I mean, I have. I've certainly played Arid Mesa essentially since Sorceress Spyglass, and the reason is because I found myself in too many games running into it and getting really blown out by Sorceress Spyglass. Okay, and that that Arid Mesa, and then three strand and three uh tarn three tarn allows me to quickly get all any one of my basics yeah. to the ma- maximum extent and it's worked out very well actually um but, specifically, but this is the kind though, of corner ca- but this is the kind of corner case where it really becomes a liability yes does a tarn in the arid mesa slot here push this into capability though do you think no i think that's what i think that's what we've led to right is that it's not like the Tarn here is going to allow you to cast Plow unless you find <laughs> another fetch land that can find the basic planes, right? So I think that this, number one, so even if we were to say in the kind of a meta context that, you know, this kind of hand might arise enough to be a cost of Arid Mesa mm-hmm. and that you have to weigh that against the benefit of a hedge against Sorcerer's Spyglass, which is, by the way, used in decks like Oath as well. Yeah. Um, and I've been very pleased with Arid Mesa. It's come up a number of times against Sorcerer's Spyglass, very importantly. Um, but, you know, obviously it's hard to know, to measure, quantify, you know, the number of games and the significance of the Mesa in the games against Source Black Glass against the number of games like this, right? Granted. Um, but you're, that's not the question you're asking. No. And I think you're actually asking the more important question. But I did, I want to flag that because I figured a number of our listeners might be thinking it. That's fair. But the question you're asking is, I think, even the more important one, which is in some sense, because just the configuration of this hand, having two late game cards, Dig and Snapcaster, and a redundant card, ostensibly, <laughs> suggests that, that, that this hand is not actually significantly improved at all <laughs> um, by having a Tarn or a Strand here. Yeah, that's my feeling as well. I don't believe that the vulnerabilities of this hand are truly Arid Mesa's fault. Right. I think they're exacerbated Even a if, little, but right. it's not. it's Even- not the... The main culprit. I mean, the best fetch land you could have here would be Flooded Strand. Absolutely. And so if you analyze this with Flooded Strand, it doesn't materially change the analysis. That's the funny part. (laughs) Yeah, it really doesn't. I mean, yes, it gives you a little more security on turn one preordain. So you might say you've got a little more control over how this hand plays out. Right. But but you're still very draw dependent. You're still cutting yourself off from plow if you go basic island. And the whole thing can still fall apart in basically the same ways. (laughs) Yeah. It's just how, you know, what kind of fate do you prefer? <laughs> interesting, interesting analysis. Yeah. I, I, think, I, I would I think be, we've... oh, I would be agonized to pull this hand up, but I think Mulligan is actually the, the correct solution. This is, this hand is probably, it's, just an, it's probably it just not better than the enough. average six. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's a close call. Yeah. That's why it's worth discussing. Absolutely. <laughs> Re- reasonable people can certainly differ or disagree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's move on to number four. And this is one that came up in my tournament experience at a recent tournament. This is another opening hand question. This time... It's, but it's not a mulligan decision. But it's not... Well, I mean, it's not a... No, it's not directly a mulligan decision. We're playing Thoughtcast Outcome. So we're on Esper. We're playing Outcome with four Thoughtcasts and four Seed of the Synods and that kind of package. Very similar to what I played in the finals of the VSL. The opening hand is a doozy. And and we're on the play here. So 
We've got Mock Sapphire, and that is our only mana source. Then we've got Preordain, Brainstorm, and the Ponder, Snapcaster Mage, Thoughtcast, Force of Will. So once again, a Sapphire for mana, three one-mana cantrips, two of which are restricted, Snapcaster Mage, Thoughtcast, and Force of Will. Clearly, we're on the play here. Oh, and by the way, we're playing against another blue deck. This case, it was a rug outcome opponent. Game three, actually. Now, clearly, this hand really comes down to how you value and evaluate these three different cantrips we've got and what your plan is for executing this hand, how you value protecting them, and how the game's going to play out, assuming that things go (laughs) the way you want them to. Right. Steve, we, we've talked about this kind of thing a number of times this, before in the context of preordain versus ponder. Yeah. yeah. It's a sequencing question, which which is the order. So there there is a, a pretty straightforward way of thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the variables, though, is if your opponent has misstep, and to what extent do you do you fear that? Yep. Um, the force of will gives you a nice little security blanket here. Mm-hmm. But the most, if your goal is to find a land, then as between ponder, brainstorm, and preordain, the card that gives you the highest probability is Ponder. Yep. The the worst card to play here is is Brainstorm because it, it gives you the greatest chance of being locked. So it's either between Ponder or Preordain. I tend to play. I would tend to play uh, Ponder here, but Preordain is a is a decent backup. And the baseline comparison between Ponder and Preordain is basically the ability to see three cards versus four, which is why you immediately pointed right. out Ponder's ability to find any one particular thing you're looking for is maximized. However, there's also the question of long-term investment, because if you find that land in the first three cards with Ponder, you run the risk of being temporarily, at least, locked, as you put it, into two other undesirable cards. You could, I mean, you could easily Ponder into a land and another Force of Will and a Paradoxical Outcome, right? Or just yeah. any other three mana or spells that you can't cast, like Tinker or something. At which point you're kind of priced into keeping the land, but then this mana base in this deck has very few fetch lands. This is a two fetch land deck because of the Seats of the Synod and because it's three colors. So your odds of the land you find being a fetch land are about as low as they can be in a vintage deck, which means if you hit on Ponder, then you're incentivized to play another um, cantrip into already known cards. Which is not that big of an issue with preordain, but it does diminish the efficacy of preordain, basically. You're either going to keep the good cards that are there, which means it's not at its best, or you're going to be guaranteed to be pushing the the cards you don't want, which means that, again, it's not at its best. Now, a lot of people might say, hey, that's a fine use of a ponder plus a preordain is to find the best thing and then get past it, the, the, the bad stuff, and get to new cards. Yes, the outcome is is okay there. But that begs the question, if you're planning to find your land in the first three cards with Ponder, then wasn't Preordain the better card to lead with? (laughs) That's an interesting uh, line of reasoning. Um, Because then you're seeing more new cards in the combination. Well, the analysis that I conducted was simply about and entirely focused on finding a land. Your analysis is not that narrow. Agreed. And, so and you, my analysis yeah. is a little bit tongue-in-cheek, right? I mean, if you think the land is in the top three, then Preordain followed by Ponder is gives you more options. Yeah. 
if you're risk averse, then ponder is just simply the, the, I, the numbers wise the best choice to start with. I am risk averse, as as many people know, and therefore <laughs> I think <laughs> I think finding the land is the priority. Let's put it a, in a different context. Then let's take let's say you take the most risk averse, uh, sorry, risk averse line and play ponder first. How much have you truly given up in the in the middle, the like the median scenario? You find that land in the first three. Are you really unhappy that now you're playing preordained to look past two cards and getting putting them on the bottom? Do you feel like you've really well, wasted the, resources the va- to do that? Again, it comes down to the possibility that your top three cards does not have another mana source. Sure, sure. And so if 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 they don't, then it doesn't really matter. You know, of course you're happy to bottom the top two cards. <laughs> okay. But you're still no closer to your objective. <laughs> not necessarily. Okay, that's fair. Well, I was not feeling terribly risk averse when i played this hand and i played preordain first because i have i have this mental uh rut that i fall into when i'm forced with when i'm faced with preordain plus ponder and that is i like to maximize how many cards i'm going to see in total so i I like the preordain leading into the ponder Uh uh-huh but i was rewarded because the first card i drew off the preordain was a land and so this hand wow yeah this hand played into turn two i think it was turn two brainstorm it was you know it was preordained into ponder and then turn two brainstorm because i think i had found a fetch off the ponder and mm-hmm. so i got to just really correct this hand quite well and i pitched that thought cast to force of will how lucky i know so everything <laughs> panned out i didn't actually end up winning this game because i spent so much time and this kind of yeah, comes back to the mulligan decision yeah i spent yeah. so much time and energy and over the course of the first two turns just correcting the issues with the opening hand that my opponent was able to actually to develop faster <laughs> develop their their game plan so it's worth considering in the mulligan process that even though this hand can execute and clean itself up relatively well you run the risk of spending too much time on turns one and two doing that and if your opponent has anything proactive to do it's hard for you to fix your hand and fight at the same time this force of will quickly narrows your options down to oh i guess i need to find a pyroblast or another force of will fast and double force of will in blue mirrors can sometimes be a death knell which it was for me in this particular match yeah that's not what you want you need a a mixture of counter magic exactly well that's still an illustrative it's an illustrative case yep Um, i think it is you you can develop some heuristics for which sequence you deploy these cantrips in but then it backs you up to the point of wait in best case scenario is this hand actually still any good Yeah, I think that's right, and I think that there is. I think this hand is is more subtle than I was giving it credit for. Mm-hmm. I think what you really, I think the strategic, the interim strategic objective here is yes, you want to find your land, but what you really want is a fetch land so that you can play brainstorm and fetch next turn mm-hmm. to re-sculpt this hand. That's really what you want. What you want. I agree. And if you can do that, then then maybe you get rid of the snapcaster mage. Maybe you can get a mox and a seat of the sign on in play or something, and then you can thought cast, or maybe you just pitch. Get rid of both the Snapcaster and the Thoughtcast, and and you get to, you get go an entirely different route. Right. Yes, exactly right. This hand basically succeeded in undoing the the weaknesses it had, but did not translate then into strength, and that yes. was its downfall. Yeah. Because when you when you think about this hand is segregated into a fixing portion and then a business portion. It, you know, the three cantrips yep. can correct the mana <laughs> issues. But then you're looking at but a hand of some, snap, right, thought, cast, actually, and force, which are not need, good cards unless you have the resources available to deploy them. 
that runs up right into my last comment, yeah. which is that you really need the brainstorm to fix the the business part. Yep, exactly. Yeah, good good scenario. So let's move um, on to our last one then. Hopefully, our uh, listeners can take something away from that. Yes, let's move on to the Library of Alexandria Conundrum. Love it. It's it's less of a actual scenario than more of a general conundrum that comes up, <laughs> <laughs> and we can you know we can play with it a little bit. Um, so I, I thought this up. We were, I was looking for a, a fifth scenario to give us a nice round number. And, um, and this this came up in the VSL during the playoffs, right? I forget who had it. I, I don't remember that, but it, it, was, it probably did. It probably was me. <laughs> uh, but no, no, you were commentating with Randy. I think it oh. came up in one of Efro's hands, and I think it might have come up in one of mine as well. I think it came up it twice. It probably just during, comes up a lot. <laughs> yeah, during the VSL playoffs. Anyway, go on. So the scenario, the scenario is pretty simple. You're on the play, and your opening hand has a Library of Alexandria. Quite naturally, you play Library of Alexandria in order to hopefully draw a <laughs> card on your next turn, and then begin drawing for many turns thereafter. Problem. Your opponent opens with Ancestral Recall on their turn, and you have a mental misstep in hand. Do you play mental misstep knowing that if you do, you'll be two turns off from Library and the library will perhaps be impeding your mana development in the process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can modify it by saying, if you have force of will instead of misstep, does that change your answer? And we can talk about why that may or may not change your answer. Um, well, let, let me just do that now. So um, one of the considerations to think about is, what's the probability of the fact that your misstep will actually stop their ancestral? If someone goes ancestral on turn one, the chances of them having a misstep to back it up are usually decent, Right. Yeah, it's it's a little less than forty percent, right? Right. So not quite most of the time, but but <laughs> a decent chance. Um, also, which means that you might be expending a misstep for no really good reason there, right? You won't actually be accomplishing the sub goal of stopping their ancestral. Right. The reason the 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 force of will materially changes that is because the probability of them having a, a land, an ancestral recall, a force of will, and a blue spell is much less than them just having a land, a blue land, mana producing land. Ancestral Recall and Misstep. Yeah. So the Force of Will, if you have Force of Will, it gives you a much higher chance of stopping their Ancestral, but it also means that you have, you're much, much further away from being able to get back on Library. So Kevin, I don't know if you have a kind of a rule of thumb for dealing with this situation. I do not. (laughs) (laughs) I play it as it comes to me. Um, yeah, but what do you what do you think? So uh, I'm with you. I play it as it as it happens, and uh, there's just I have to look at other factors, right? Uh, w- you know, what game are we in? How do I feel uh-huh. about the matchup? How important is library? How reliable is library? Right. The and what other what other advantages and disadvantages do I have in the matchup? So there are some matchups where, like, if you're playing, I don't know, paradoxical outcome against uh, another red based deck that has pyroblasts. You're, you kind of have an uphill climb yeah. in those kind of pyroblast yeah. matchups where you're, you might be disadvantaged in the pyroblast war. That's, that's a good example, right? <laughs> right. Conversely, you might be playing uh, Jeskai against... And you might be advantaged. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, you might be playing against land still, where your library is pretty unreliable, right? Right. Now, granted, they're playing Ancestral on one, so they clearly don't have the Waster Strip right now. But this Ancestral resolving is almost the death knell for your library, right? So right. you might get one activation out of it, but in a landstill matchup, it's not long for this world. So those are the kind of things I look at. Now, it's pretty clear that your opponents, when they put Ancestral onto the stack, uh, on the on the draw, turn one, 
in the face of your library is they're in a, a narrow range of mindsets, I would say. One of them is that, hey, this I've got Ancestral plus Misstep. This is great, right? That's the kind of play you make even if your opponent doesn't have library. You just make that play because it's a great play, and most of the time you're setting yourself up to play some Moxin and maybe another threat on turn one. The other space they could be in is I don't want my opponents to tap this library anytime soon, right? I have no protection for this Ancestral, but if they right, misstep it, right. I'm still getting one out of the three cards, possibly right. two out of the three cards, because I'm denying them library activations. That's an interesting wrinkle. Yes. Yeah. So it's hard to suss out, and you might go down to what kind of read do you have on your opponents? If it's in person, do you have any kind of tells for them in terms of, is this just a get-me-off-of-library ancestral? or right. is Are they actually trying to accomplish something right, else? Right, right. So, so you've you've created a. I'm sorry. Go ahead. So those are examples of things I try to read into the situation. Well, you've introduced a number of variables. Let me introduce another without <laughs> without pretending to begin to answer any of them. <laughs> so one of the things you've brought into the equation is you know what is your opponent playing and how might that affect the reliability of library. Mm-hmm. Like if they're playing Landstill, they could very easily waste or strip your library. But let me flip it. How valuable is the library to you now? Obviously. Mm-hmm. Library is a very powerful card in a, in a control pilot uh, board state, especially if you're near activation or activating it. You know you can do a you can gain a lot of card advantage on it. Yep. But what if library is your only land and you were relying on the library to draw you more lands? Yep. Or or what if the li- if you're all lands and you need the library to draw you more spells? Right. The value of the library can materially change depending upon the rest of your hand. And so that that could impact whether you deploy the misstep or not. Definitely. So, and for example, so if your hand you, is just all counter magic and library, you may really you might not feel very threatened by the ancestral because none of the subsequent strategic plays are really likely to resolve if they're really game breaking. But you may really want that additional draw next turn to give yourself a better chance of finding another mana source. Absolutely, your hand might might dictate that you simply re- you simply need to stay on the library plan to make the hand work. Kind of a cou- counterpoint to the cantrips hand we just discussed, right? That hand yeah. needs those cantrips and some combination to be effective at all. And there are several library hands that just require library to be online to be effective. But you could also have a hand that already has a nice mixture of mana and spells. Mm-hmm. And the library, you might just say, you know, look, I have in my hand a blue mana, a spell piercer, a fluster storm, force of will, and this misstep. I I don't I don't see them really resolving anything. I'm gonna just throw this misstep out there, and yeah, I'm off of library for a turn, but it'll be okay. Yeah, agreed. So I I'm thinking about the VSL, and I definitely had one of you my got, games. You were on library. Now that I'm thinking about it, yeah, there was definitely a game that you were commentating because I and I was thinking about you during the game, but I went back and rewatched it then in the light of your commentary. And you you immediately pointed out this this choice I made, right? I had like a turn one, turn one, maybe turn two decision about whether or not I would stay on library or force my opponent's spells. And I, I chose to get off library in that case. But it was a very kind of intuitive sort of this spell that they're casting is more important than my library next turn. I think it was a scenario whereby I was expecting to only be on library one time. That's another thing, too. It's, it's another variant on what you were just saying is if I stay on library this turn, like going into turn two in this case, am I anticipating being on library then for several turns? 
because there are certain hands right. that, especially hands like in outcome decks, where you could be on library once and then just yeah. deploy your hand and go go into your next phase of your game plan. And so that has to ha- be part of the equation too. Is am I expecting right. to get one card out of this library or four Before four cards out of this library? Right. Yeah. No, I think I think this is an important point, and it's easy to applaud players who have incredible fortitude and internal discipline in in ignoring what their opponent is doing and then you know and stay on library but really it depends on what is happening next on what is actually the product of this right if you're in a, if you're playing a deck that can turn on a dime maybe library isn't actually the most important thing and it's it's a really subtle thing to evaluate number 1 your opponent's strategic objectives and board state yours and what what's happening against you know the value of an ancestral recall and and the chances you have of stopping it they're they're all <laughs> they're all difficult to to kind of weigh against each other and they and they all matter which makes it even more difficult absolutely so unfortunately we've kind of come down to the point where there's no there's no one answer there are a hand not even a rule of thumb yeah, yeah. there are a handful of heuristics you can use vis-a-vis the effectiveness of your own library in the matchup and how you view yourself in the matchup. A lot of that comes down to, you know, your role, an assignment of role, that kind of thing. And ultimately, is your opponent's ancestral going to be <laughs> greater than your library? And honestly, I can say with certainty that I, I don't have an answer that I use as you know, reliably. I use some or all of the factors we've just discussed to answer this in real time. And it's probably different almost every time. It's a, a beautiful question. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just leave it as the library conundrum right. for you. And that's why it makes a perfect scenario to discuss, in a sense, because it becomes somewhat philosophical in the end. <laughs> 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 there is no right answer to this conundrum. It's a conundrum that will never go away, right? Fermi's uh, paradox or whatever, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you solve it, let us know. Yeah, exactly. Please, you come up with the answer. Uh, don't, don't keep it to yourself. So that brings us to the end of our scenarios here, but not necessarily to the end of the show. Steve, what treat do we have in store for the audience here? Well, we have a very cool treat, but I, I don't want to just completely leave the scenarios segment yet. Okay. Because I, I would like to just ask folks to, and, and Kevin and I will certainly do this, but in the interest of creating more shows like this, and let us know if you've enjoyed it, mm. um, we would like you to be in the habit of sending us cool scenarios for analysis. That's a great idea. So, yes, Twitter is probably the best medium for that, I would say. Nothing against receiving them via email, but Steve and I are definitely better at seeing and responding to Twitter than we are our email account. And also, you know, the, the addition of imagery and polls always makes scenarios makes it more visceral. Yeah, really yeah. easy to convey via Twitter. So, yeah, by all means, please, when you come upon interesting scenarios, ship them out to us and we can either talk about them online, you know, social media style, and or cover them in a future show. And our goal is to do enough of these shows that people start saving this for our discussions. Yes. So, well, yes, we do have a cool bonus segment. Uh, folks really enjoyed, by some accounts, <laughs> our Last Jedi discussion. <laughs> there were a few a few complainers, but... <laughs> you can't please everyone. <laughs> no. Well, we've decided to add another bonus non-magic content, and Kevin and I are going to talk about one of our favorite TV shows of all time. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. 
So, Kevin, The X-Files. Oh, yes. <laughs> One of our favorite shows. Uh, you know, both you and I have our own favorite television shows. Uh, I know you are very fond of The Simpsons. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, and one. Uh, we used to, when I, back when we both lived in Columbus, we used to go to your house and play, and you just put season after season of The Simpsons on in the background. But <laughs> but both both you and I have long, for a long time shared a, 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 an abiding adoration and passion for The X-Files. Um, personally, I'll let you speak, but personally, it's it's probably my favorite television show of all time. Um, and there, you know, it's up there. I, I love shows like Breaking Bad, Game of Thrones, um, I, Claudius, The Prisoner, Prisoner's Super Classic, Star Trek The Next Generation. But for me, uh, The X-Files combines both great television, great acting and performances with um, with some cultural touchstones and kind of moment-in-your-life type things, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's just such a wonderful show, great – the way it, it melds music and tone to set music to set to set tone is possibly unparalleled among other television shows. Kevin, is that one of the things you appreciated about the most? Well, uh, yeah, I love the music, um, and it's interesting because it it came about at a time in my life when I was deeply involved in music, and so the the work that Mark Snow did was actually pretty unusual for television at that time, and it was also. I, I don't know. I just I see the craft of it a lot when I see watch those early episodes, especially again. And so it's definitely amplifies my appreciation. You know, when, when you turn off the lights and you put on the X Files, it's hard to appreciate it. But Mark Mark Snow's music really does amplify the tension. You know, it yeah. makes it. You can create terror almost in a moment just with his 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 music, and it's so yeah. different from anything we'd seen before. Yep. Um. So the, the X Files is an amazing show. Kevin and I thought that we would share our top ten X Files episodes. So if you're a fan of the X Files, um, this is going to be a, a hopefully a treat, and we're going to talk about why why we have what our top ten is and why there are top ten. Sure. How do you want to go about doing this, Steve? Well, I think what we'll do is we'll do ten to one. Yeah. Um, each of us, and we'll go, just go back and forth. But I also think we have to say a little bit more about kind of what we. I guess in the process, we'll say what we lo- we love about the show, and we'll use the, our top ten list to do that. Yeah, that makes sense. Sure. So, um, I guess I'll kick us off, Kevin, if that's yep. okay with you. Um, now, I have to caveat by saying that the season 11 is underway, and season 10 was a, was a brief six-episode season. Um, and Kevin, you have, you've seen every episode except you have not seen any of season 11, correct? That's right. We haven't started but, watching this season at all. But you have, you've been immersed in... I mean, how many times have you seen the show? Probably at least twice. <laughs> I think I well yeah I mean I watched the show as it was released because my family was into it in real time back in the 90s so I watched it then and then my wife and I rewatched the whole run about 5 yeah. years ago and then I have watched spot episodes since then so any one episode I've seen at least yeah. at least two or three times I'm in the exact same boat not yeah. I well, not quite caught up to you in, in terms of seeing Star Wars The Last Jedi, but which I do want to see at least one or more. T- t- I assume you haven't seen it again. I have not since our show, no. Yeah, I need to get out there and see it again before it leaves the theaters. Okay, so 10 to 1 are our favorite um, X-Files episodes, and if we get to the end and we haven't mentioned some of the best, we'll, we'll give them an honorable mention. Right. I think number 10 for me is probably an episode from Season 6 called The Rain King. Rain King. What can you tell us about that so uh, the Rain King is a really funny episode where uh, there's a guy who's kind of a huckster out there who um, 
who claims that he can make it rain in a drought-stricken town yep. if people pay him money. And so it's season six has this cluster. It, it was just after the X-Files moved from, from Vancouver to LA, but it has a cluster of really great episodes back to back. Um, and I, I think that the episode is so funny because, uh, th- so the mayor asks Mulder and Scully to investigate this guy, um, <laughs> you know, to see, see what happens. But the way that the plot plays out and the surprises that it unfolds, I just think makes it one of the, one of the best episodes kind of really, um, representative of the mixture of humor, quirkiness, silly plot, but in- silly, but also intriguing plot premises, you know, that, um, and I don't want to spoil anything, but there, but there actually is a kind of supernatural premise behind who is actually causing the weather to change. But it's yep. not what not what you think. Um, but I just think it's it's it kind of is in that class of not scary but really funny, quirky episodes. Yes, definitely. This one is not on my top ten list, but that's not a slight against it. It definitely could be. I would. This is getting into some fundamental elements of how I choose these at this point. But I agree with you. I think my favorite episodes tend toward the ones with a heavy comedic element. Yeah. And there's a sub theme across the, some, many of the comedic episodes of the huckster is, is one variant of it, but it's the person <laughs> professing to have some capability and whether or not they are reliable is always yeah. a tension in these episodes. Yes. Sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't, right? Right. But then you mix that with the comedic situations that come up. This one is and no the dry humor of Fox Mulder and and, yeah, and and all that. Exactly. Now Scully's skepticism plays against these characters. <laughs> and then you pepper in one of the things that the X Files I think is known for, and that is fantastic character actors. Oh my just god. Just these unbelievable yeah. just show after show, episode after episode, they bring in these great actors. Yeah, yeah. Who have these bit parts and and so the, yeah, the characters in this one are are just like that. And so it's one of the, it brings out one of the things that you'll find as a sub theme of my favorite episodes as well. So what's your 10, 10 on your, 10 on your list? So number 10 on the list, and I'm already cheating because my 10th on the list is actually a two part episode, which is colony into end game. Hmm. So you're going to find that I, I tend to favor the early seasons, Not, nothing against the, the you know, season six you mentioned is fantastic, but I really enjoyed the early parts of the show where things were getting fleshed out. And the I have issues with how the the overarc the overarching arc mythology lines played out yeah. in the later seasons. As do, as do most of fandom, X Files yeah. fandom. <laughs> so I tend to enjoy the arc shows from earlier in the run. And Colony, which is a it's listed as a two part episode, and the second part is called Endgame, is one that introduces a whole bunch of stuff about the about the cloning human clones. And then it introduces the recurring character of the alien bounty hunter, mm-hmm. which a lot of fans refer to the actor as the Schwarzen alien yes, because, he is. <laughs> because of the actor's you know Appearance facial and- resemblance to Arnold Schwarzenegger, yeah. Yeah. which I think is hilarious. But I, is. I, I, mean, I like that character, and he's very menacing, very menacing, you know, yes, repeatedly. And so I just like how this this two part episode was. Um, it was instructive for a lot of the mythology for many episodes to come, and it, it, it answered a lot of questions, but it introduced more questions than it answered, which is, you know, obviously the the MO for these kind of mythology episodes. Great, great one. Kevin, you said you started watching with your family. Did your family, did you guys start with season one, or did you get in? Um, it was later? very early season one. I don't know if we wow. watched, I don't think we, I don't think I was party to watching the pilot when it came out. 
but my parents got hooked quickly, and so it became a ritual for us to watch the show very early on. The very, I'm right there with you. The very first episode I ever saw on live on television was Jersey Devil, which is the fifth episode. Okay. I caught a piece of it, but the first episode that really drew me in was Gender Bender, which okay. is not on my list, but it was the plot. You know, I was 14, actually not even 14 at the time, but it was about an Amish colony, and I just thought that you know. Growing up in Ohio, you always see the Amish people at the zoo or in, in places like that. And, and you know, when you're 13 or 14, there's something really enigmatic and mysterious about the Amish. You know, they're kind of like the ultimate other, in, in a sense. And, <laughs> and the idea of the Amish being alien in some respect was an interesting metaphor, and I thought it was just a fascinating premise. And I got hooked, and I, I was basically a file for the rest of the series, an X-file, P-H-I-L-E. Um, so, so we were both kind of hooked very early. Definitely. Um, my, my, my next episode, and it's, it's hard to curate a, a top 10 list, <laughs> but, um, my next episode is called Terms of Endearment, also from season six. Okay. And this is a cool episode because speaking of character actors, it, it stars Bruce Campbell, who is best known as Ash <laughs> from the Evil Dead series. Oh, yeah. But the premise is so cool. So the premise is that he is a demon who is trying to impregnate, impregnate women and have a healthy human boy. Yeah. And he keeps having children that have demonic features. <laughs> and and it's, so it's like this really interesting hybrid of scary, hilarious, and creepy, all at the same time. Yep. And it's just such a kind of classic episode. Um, great acting, great performances, great quotes. Um, unforgettable. What do you uh, remember about that? I, I remember the, the revelation of his true motivation and being shocked at how um disappointed he was and how um uh sympathetic i was to his plight and and how satisfying that was as an audience member to just be thrust into this great sympathy for this demon right i mean that's that's and also how wholesome his goal was exactly that's what i was going to say is that yeah the, the, the what he what makes it so interesting is that, first of all, you don't really know that he's the demon, but he really right. is earnest in trying to find a kind of classic American suburban life. And he really loves these women. Like, he yeah. really, you really feel like he's deeply in love and he's trying to have a normal family and he can't do it. But then when you see his real form, he's like this incredibly terrifying and and quite evil demon, right? <laughs> right. Like, it's it's a it's a fascinating premise. Like, what if the devil really just wanted to settle down? Right? It's kind of the <laughs> <laughs> right. What's so and cool about it? So that's so that points to another through line of the show, and especially of the sorts of episodes that you and I like, and that is subverting expectations right. for certain character tropes. You will and, you will definitely hear that in my my number one episode. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's a through line for my favorites too, including the next one. So ninth on my list is uh, Die Hand der Verletz, oh, which is yeah. which is German for. Hold on, I need to find it. Uh, I was just looking it up on the Wikipedia page. The hand that wounds is that it? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. So I'm not. Gonna, I don't want to go through the whole plot of this episode, but this episode for me is just made in the opening scene because the opening scene yes. it, it, it comes in on a group of high school faculty members that are. They're meeting to discuss administrators. It's a school board. Yeah, Yeah. they're meeting to discuss various school-related things. Right? It's like you know, just a regular faculty meeting, and they appear to all be white bread, middle America, socially conservative, 
they're debating whether the students should perform Greece or Jesus Christ no, Superstar. No, it's Jesus Christ Superstar, right? Yeah. Well, it's it's one or the other. I think <laughs> they're saying it's too racy. It's too yeah. yeah. So they're setting this. You know, they're setting the stage for these being very conservative people, pretty milk toast, white bread. You know, they end their meeting. This is you know the show. You haven't even seen the credits of the show yet. And they end their meeting by holding hands and reciting this satanic chant, this satanic prayer to end their school board meeting. <laughs> and so you're immediately right. thrust into this, what is going on? And I, I mean, I don't want to really talk about the rest of the plot because it, it continues to subvert it, expectations and what it means to have this Satanism moving through this church or this, uh, this wholesome community. But that, I just, I just loved that setup. Well, as you, I can't help but think that my enthusiasm in our previous discussions may have colored your appreciation for this, but I, I'm sure you loved it before that. But but uh, until last year, this was my favorite X Files episode of all time. So okay, uh, I'll, I'll skip number two in my list because I mean, we, I'll just well, we can get back to it. I don't we'll know how you to want to handle duplication in our no, list. No, no, no. I, mean, I think it's I think it's fine. I think it just will shorten our our recording process. But yeah, um, but I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, there are so many. First of all. Not only did you is that opening sequence probably my favorite opening sequence in all the X Files. There's another really good opening sequence of an episode that's not in my list, and an episode that's called All Souls. That's mm-hmm. really beautiful. Where um, there's this this disabled girl who is um, is really kind of like part human, part angel, and she's she's killed in the middle of the street, and that that whole scene is just so beautiful. I but in that, terms, yeah. but in terms of kind of culture flipping expectations dialogue that the the hand that opening log line as the x-files calls it is my favorite of all time and what you didn't say is <laughs> is that and my favorite part about it is that you you don't actually hear or you don't actually see the the chant instead they close the door and there's a bright light that silhouettes the door <laughs> and and so when they're doing the chant to satan at the end of that all you see is the do- closed door without light, and that is such an uh, an unbelievable image. And and I, I agree, we don't want to give that away too many quotes, but there are such great quotes in that episode. Yeah, and and you know, there's there's uh, Fox Mulder and Scully both have amazing quotes. There's a, a a periodical that came out in the early '90s called Wrapped in Plastic, and it was um, a fanzine dedicated to Twin Peaks. And uh, in the first, in the, you know, maybe like the sixth or seventh issue, seventh issue had a season one review of the X Files, and uh, I remember picking that up and loving that magazine because it had in it a, a review of every episode, detailed descriptions, including critiques like plot holes, writer's block, um, and had a cool map of every epi- where epi- every episode was in the United States, so you could see that. Well, many many years later, you know, after Probably about five years late, five years ago, because I, I bought this wrapped in plastic issue um, in 1993 off the shelf in a, in, a, in a comic book store when I was 13 or four, probably 14, because it was right after season one. But many, many years later, I discovered that that um, the makers of this magazine published a season two review, and De Hand of Erlitz is from season two. And uh, about five years ago, I bought it online, and, and I eagerly awaited getting it in the mail, and I was devastated, Kevin. To find uh-huh. that this this person that I I loved his his essays on the X Files and his re, his uh, analysis gave Dehande Verlitz I think two or three out of five stars. <laughs> I was just wow. devastated, and I wrote him. <laughs> I wrote him, <laughs> and I and I I told him why he was wrong, and he was actually very kind. He replied, and I think he since passed from uh, passed from cancer. 
But um, but it was in a, a magazine called Spectrum, which was a companion magazine to Wrapped in Plastic. But they were both it, the Spectrum was dedicated to like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, X Files, and other things like that. Whereas Wrapped in Plastic was much more focused on on Twin Peaks. The only reason they even did the X Files was because David Duchovny was in Twin Peaks. Um, and actually, anyway, so it's a long yep. aside to say that not everyone shares our appreciation for that episode, but I, <laughs> and, and he did actually raise some good points. I mean, not all of the plot twists necessarily make complete sense, but, um, especially one of the girl, the, the, the debate over one of the young girl's memories and whether they were false memories or not. But I think it is absolutely representative. And the ending is also so perfect. I don't remember the ending, but we, we shouldn't spoil it here in either yeah, way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I'll just say one thing. There's a message on a chalkboard. Okay. <laughs> that helps you helps jog your memory. All right. All right. Great great episode though. That's my until last year was my favorite episode of all time. Okay. So that means we need to go to your number nine. Uh yep. No, eight. My uh, number your number eight, eight. excuse me. Uh, yeah. Excuse me. Um my number eight is I think it's the host, which is one mm. of the first episodes in season two. And it's probably the most iconic, quote-unquote, villain, bad guy, monster, certainly yeah. in the entire Exophiles mythology. And it's, it's basically the fluke, worm ep- the fluke Man episode where, you know, you have a fluke worm and then you get – it's kind of like the alien scenario, right? <laughs> You're, you get a yeah. parasite and then it turns into – the problem I have with it is when I went back and watched it, it's actually kind of chopped up. It's, it's only like 60% Fluke Man Monster of the Week and the other half is dealing with the shutting down of the X-Files. So it's not yeah. quite as, as strong as memory holds, but it's still iconic enough, I think, to make my top 10 list. Well, it is number seven on my list. So I <laughs> I love the combination. Okay, so I love the combination of it being having a monster of the week, but also contributing to the arc. So yeah. the, the choppiness that you referred to there is actually one of the things I like about it because it, it seems to have some weight toward the larger mythology and the fate of the x-files i thought early on in the show that was actually a really kind of compelling tension was x-files getting shut down right yeah but also i just i just enjoyed the mystery of the monster in that case and yeah the, the combination of those factors really worked for me the um wasn't that episode one where they it was one of skinner's early episodes was it not um, it wasn't his first. He was, he was prominently in it, but it, yeah, but he had already been introduced. But he was this very, you know, he's this g- very glowering presence <laughs> in the show, and I just loved his character. It was really early on for him. I don't know if that was that was his second or third episode, maybe. But yeah, I just love the combination of factors in that show and where it fits in the overall mythology. So number eight then on my list is DPO. You're going to have to remind me what this one is. <laughs> DPO, you'll recall, is about some teenage boys and specifically one played by Giovanni Ribisi. And I remember this episode powerfully because of his performance. And it was my introduction to him as an actor. And I've since gained a lot of respect for him. But he's the boy that can control electricity and specifically call down lightning when he's especially uh, unhappy. And the episode deals a lot with his his teenage angst basically because he kills some people <laughs> when he's very upset at them. <laughs> right. Um, I liked this episode heavily because of his performance, as I, as I said, but I also liked the way in which Mulder and Scully investigated this episode because it, it became a trope by the end of the show. But recall this is, this is early season three 
and it was it wasn't really tropey at this point for Mulder and Scully's investigative techniques to, to pull them <laughs> in some different directions. Yes, we had seen it happen several times, but I was still, when this came out, really enjoying it because it had the traditional elements where Mulder is like, hey, could it be that this kid can control the electricity? And Scully's like, no, that's not possible. That kind of thing. Um, but also it had some real menace because of the way Giovanni acted. And I remember... A very striking scene seared into my mind is, you know, because early in the episode, he's kind of brooding and he just goes around sullenly and is, you see why he's unhappy about some things and you see some mysterious deaths, but you're not certain they're connected to him. Well, obviously they're connected to him, but um, there comes a point near the apex of the episode where he just really lets loose and is yelling and he has this kind of uncontrolled uh, he's got this spittle coming his, out of his mouth and he's yelling, but surrounding him, you know, transformers are exploding and lightning is shooting out around in the, on the street. And it's very kind of frightening and powerful. And it made you think is one of those scenarios that makes you think, geez, how are they going to stop him? I mean, if yeah. he's this angry, you can't he's even approach powerful. him. Yeah, and he's super powerful. So it kind of had a little bit of kind of an X-Men sort of feel to it. Like he's got these, these true powers that are really frightening, you know, certain monsters of the week, like the, 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 the fluke man, some of them have this feeling of like, okay, I don't want to be in close quarters with this thing, but if I can just keep my distance, you know, all it, you know, it's trying to bite me. It's like, okay, I can, I can, I can deal with something that's just trying to bite me. But this kid who can call down lightning when I first watched this episode, I found it very, very frightening and thinking about what he could do. I, I yeah. just loved it. And it well, so part of my also, nostalgia is just remembering what I felt like when I was watching it the first time. It's also a great example of how many great character actors the series has had. I mean, oh, it's, yeah. it's had, this has Jack know, Black he, in it, too. Jack Black's in in the same one, right? He's the, plays one of he's his the, friends, the, the yeah. video game player. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and I mean... You know, these episodes, one of the episodes in season two has uh, Monk in it, the guy who plays yep. Monk. Yep. Um, and Giovanni, I mean, I, he's been in a ton of movies as a character actor, but right. obviously one of the more prominent roles is he's the villain in Ted. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. But yes, yeah, that's that's a good one. Thanks for bringing that up. Um, Your number seven, then? N- my number my number seven, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention Irresistible from season, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'll, I'll do it now. See, Irresistible from season two. Now, Eugene Toomes is one of the only villains that actually appears in two episodes. He was in two mm-hmm. episodes in season one. I love the idea of repeat villains coming yeah. back. Yeah. But I actually think Donnie Faster is probably the the he actually was I think in two episodes as well. I think. And I, I don't remember for sure, but he in Irresistible, I think he's probably just the creepiest criminal slash villain <laughs> slash whatever. I think he might just be the creepiest. And the reason is because he's he's a fetishist, but there's these these very subtle moments where it's almost implied that he's a demon, he's demonic. Yeah. And that the mo- that episode is just irresistible is I think the just a great episode where, you know, it's a kind of a classic uh um gumshoe episode. At the same time, it's got those kind of just enough supernatural elements and creepiness to get under your skin and really unnerve and it does it, I think, just about as well as any episode in the entire series in that in that uh, of that type. Yeah, yeah, very interesting to read too about the script development for that episode because, well, in short, the episode's initial script, where Faster was a necrophiliac, was rejected by the Fox right. Broadcasting Company well, for being unacceptable for broadcast standards. 
Well, that's the thing about it is that so much is actually implied. Yeah. I mean, and, and I love it when, you know, when, when network television runs up against sensors because sometimes it actually makes it stronger because the stuff is, is you have to read between the lines. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You, I definitely felt he was a necrophiliac and, and anyway, but it's, it's implied, you know, yeah. <laughs> strongly. Well, and, and it's, it's, there's a, there is a common theme in the X-Files of some serious, uh, dark imagery. And I don't mean literally dark. I mean, figuratively dark activity, but so many times it is diluted through either science fiction. Like there's a lot of dark stuff that's in the mythology episodes that's diluted because it's like, 1950s era sci-fi right comic right. book pulpy right. sci-fi that's and right then the other a lot of other stuff it's, is diluted by comedy like the 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 demon episode you mentioned with bruce campbell right that's diluted with comedy and other things this one was not very diluted <laughs> it basically just got to stay dark and, and brood in its in its in its mood right it does exactly it's it's genuinely creepy yeah <laughs> So next on my list was the host, which we already discussed. So I think you can go on to your next one as well. Okay. So where am I at now? I'm in number six. I think I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in number six, I have what is I think universally considered the best episode of the first season. Mm-hmm. Although there are lots of interesting episodes, it's the quote unquote "Silence of the Lambs" episode. Okay. Meaning it's where. Where Jillian Anderson gets to basically play Jodie Foster in Silence of the Lambs, mm-hmm. um, where Brad Dorif, who is just an unbelievable character actor, plays the Hannibal Lecter character, uh, Anthony Hopkins role. And for those who don't know, Brad Dorif, I mean, Kevin, he's probably one of our favorite character actors, right? I mean, he's unbelievable in Alien Resurrection. He's in yep. all kinds of weird roles. And and is the con- condemned, he's a condemned man. A psychic, or pretends to be psychic, or, or depending on what you believe, or right. how you interpret the episode, who helps uh, Scully track down the real mur- the, the murderer. Um, it is haunting, poignant, and unbelievable performances. I mean, just it, it might be one of the single best performances in the entire show <laughs> by Brad Dorf. Uh, uh, I can agree with that. It was fantastic. I mean, he's like he's like pouring like sweat drenched down his. His brow, as he has in some of those in, intense sequences he has with Gillian Anderson. So, and then, and then it also what makes it so poignant is that the the setup for the for the show, the log line, and this isn't giving anything away because it's the teaser by design. Is the beginning part is Scully wakes up and and she has she's her dad is sitting in front of her, and her dad is played by a great character actor who's also in Twin Peaks. And he's sitting in front of her, mouthing something quietly. And then mm-hmm. she gets a call that her dad has just died. And um, her dad um, used to call her Starbuck, which, of course, and he was a, a, an admiral or some someone fair, fairly high up in the Navy. And um, Starbuck, of course, is a reference to Moby Dick, which is one of my favorite novels. And um, uh, it and it's so it's largely about her relationship with her father as well. And so it's just a, a really, and then beyond the sea is the is the song that uh, that's played at her funeral, uh, her not her funeral, His her film. father's funeral, right? Yeah. Her father's funeral. So it's a really beautiful episode. And also, it features role reversal for Mulder and Scully, right? Where she's the one believer, the believer, and he's the skeptic. Yeah. So you know that's a good point. I wanted to to mention this. One of the reasons that I've loved the X Files is because. Now, on network television in 1993, you didn't. There were very few shows that I'd ever seen where you had two characters who were presented without 
shame as being very intelligent, highly intelligent, and who spoke in a manner and mode that you didn't see. And and yet there was never a hint of satire or irony, right? You always felt like that the characters were taken seriously and they were respected by the other people in the show. In fact, very seriously so. And mm-hmm. um and and you know, the fundamental overriding idea of the X-Files is the search for truth, right? And um, you know, both Mulder and Scully pursue that truth. You know, in the in the the model for the show is that as you said, is that Scully is the the scientist, the medical doctor, who is an empiricist, who believes in the the uh, you know the precepts of of science, and and that Mulder is kind of an autodidact who is a brilliant criminal psychologist, a profiler. His setup is having solved major crimes before he was put on the X Files, but he's also an autodidact who who has learned basically to an exceptional degree research into the supernatural para para phenomena. And um, so there's always this tension around epistemology in the show, around the, 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 the dynamic between theory and evidence. And, and the best X-Files shows are those that, that, that leave ambiguity, but also where Mulder is able to spin a, a, a theory that fits the evidence and, and yet, <laughs> right, is, is never entirely <laughs> pat. And so it's, it, the dynamic is just, I mean, it might be the single best, uh, drama with lead that I've ever seen, just two, by two, two key leads. I mean, Gillian Anderson and, and David Duchovny are unbelievable actors. And I think what, what has become quite evident in the years since X-Files originally went off the air is how good they are. I mean, they both have anchored other television series that have done very well. And perhaps surprisingly, because David Duchovny left, you know, or after season six or so to pursue a movie career, like other film stars of the that decade, like David Caruso from NYPD Blue, who never really went anywhere, Jimmy Smith, so on and so forth. But um, what was most surprising is that in S- Jillian Anderson has really become the biggest star. I mean, she yeah. is she, she is just, and and I think my appreciation for her in the later se- seasons, especially the last two seasons, is just so she's so fantastic. She's so amazing in the show. The pathos, the emotion that she can bring, and yet the sophistication and intelligence that she brings is just unparalleled (laughs) this is amazing amazing yeah and i think part of i mean it could be you could make this case for both of those actors but part of the reason why her brilliance was not necessarily on display in the early seasons of the show is that skepticism is not really a tour de force acting (laughs) uh you know she her writing is downright whiny in certain cases where she's just She's just having to be exasperated and and, 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 and Mulder's just, the star and exactly and, you you know you, you haven't seen season eleven but but Scully is really the star of season eleven. Season ten is That's kind cool. of a transition where it's you know Mulder's still the center centerpiece, but there's no doubt about it. In eleven, Scully at least five episodes in, she is the yeah. star. Well, it's really cool. a, it's an amazing about face. This is a rumor, but I I had heard that she was actually offered. The, the Baroness role in Downton Abbey. And I have no doubt that that's true. Yeah. Um, you know, but she's just, she's so fantastic. Uh, and th- I will say though, to as a counterpoint to what you just said, there's, there are a number of episodes like Beyond the Sea where her acting really does shine. And sure. one of the early episodes that really stands out in my mind is One Breath. Okay. Do you remember that episode, Kevin? No, it's the episode. It's not in my top ten, but it, it very well could be. Some people think it's the best episode of the entire original run. It's the episode where she is un- unconscious, but she there's a metaphorical boat that she's sitting in, 
and the mm. boat is tethered to a dock, and she is in a hospital bed, and the boat represents her her tenuous uh, hold on life, on existence. And so you're constantly going to this metaphorical imagery of her in this boat, and then she's visited by this doctor or this nurse Owens, and she has this full conversation with nurse Owens, and it's really powerful, and it's just unbelievable performances and unbelievable i mean to do that on, on television is so breathtaking to, to actually have an entire sequence of, of metaphorical imagery is just it's wonderful <laughs> it's it's yeah. what x-files can do better than anything else um it's and it can deal with really deep and weighty themes as well it can tackle things like extinct extinction you know what is it we're we're moving towards you know um anyway yeah so let's keep going with this, but that was a good, I think, a good opportunity to delve into some of the things that we really appreciate about the X Files. So I think your it's your number five is up, or number uh, six is up. Number six. six, yeah. My number six is Humbug. Ooh, <laughs> season two, episode twenty. This episode is could possibly be the apex of awesome character actors <laughs> in the show because this episode features a uh, a sort of circus of freaks as the the group setting for the the crimes that Mulder and Scully are investigating. And this features there's a running theme we've got going here of our appreciating actors who are also in Twin Peaks. Yes. Because this episode features Michael J. Anderson, who's yes. obviously prominent in Twin Peaks, but it has just incredible character actors. Jim Rose, oh, uh, the Enigma, yeah. Vincent Chiavelli as Lanny. This is fantastic. But it's the, the, loaded. It's not just it's one loaded. of them. It's, it's like a whole It's an ensemble. An ensemble, yeah. And... But but that and the ensemble is <laughs> like, like a, a Tarantino it, cast. <laughs> it forms its own. The ensemble becomes its own character, which is one of the things I like about this show. Because part of the sub theme of the show is what it means to be uh, a different person, what it means to embrace your difference, and all these these enigmatic people, specifically the Enigma, whose character right. in the show is called the Conundrum, which is right. hilarious. Um, <laughs> but so they explore what it means to and be different yeah. and how people treat you, of course, and but also you know your, your choices in life and just the, how you the, live your the, life as one of these different people. The, the monologue or the soliloquy, it's not a soliloquy, but the, but the rant that um, <laughs> is given to Fox Mulder when he tries to get the room and, you know, by the Twin Peaks actor you mentioned earlier right. is one of the most classic pieces of dialogue in the entire show of all time. Right. <laughs> so I just, it, obviously there's a murder mystery going on along with this setting, but that's, that is definitely secondary to the, the yeah, performances, navigating the all these dialogue. characters and their yeah. interrelations. It, yeah, but, it's but, fantastic. But also the, the resolution of that mystery is just great. Yeah, I mean it's, it's it's also a good mystery. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good mystery, and it has a wonderful resolution. Yeah, uh, it's it's perfect. It's 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 yeah. almost a perfect episode. It really is. It might just be like a, an emblematic X Files episode. If you wanted to, have, if you wanted to show someone what is the X Files about, yeah. send them that episode, and you can, you can't go wrong. Yeah, agreed. I agree. That's actually next on my list. So it's oh, back fantastic. To you, back to you, Kevin. All right, so I know we're getting into we're getting into top five territory here. So my number five, and so we're, there's going to be a bunch of overlap between these, right? Yeah. My number five, and I think it might be a little higher on your list. We'll see. Is Mulder and Scully meet the Were Monster? Oh yes, <laughs> from episode from season ten, so the last full season I've watched, and <laughs> this again with the fantastic, fantastic premises, right? 
So Mulder and Scully are brought in to investigate these these crazy attacks with, you know, fang marks on the neck and all this stuff, people being attacked by monsters. And Mulder susses out that there's this this monster that's attacking people, but he's got it all wrong. And he meets this the incredible character actor. What's that actor's name? I, don't oh, have I forget, it. but yeah, I don't he's have great. it up here. Yeah. Um, and he <laughs> He's from New Zealand, yeah. Yeah, this guy gets to deliver this incredible just recount of the events that that we've been witnessing, you know, kind of incorrectly or through the wrong lens, I guess. He gets to give this incredible, incredible account to Mulder of the the actions of the episode, and he's just incredible the way he he delivers it, and it's got, he's got this, this awesome energy, but he's, he's this fantastical creature who is conveying the most banal <laughs> goals in life and, and like what it yeah. means to be human he's been he's been taken over by humanity and it's like yeah. capitalism gone run amok you know and it's just oh it's fantastic it's just completely fantastic and one one of the sub themes for my favorite episodes are people recounting uh past events with their own inflections and their own views on things and this one just has it in spades. It is so worth just watching him rant, rattle off what has happened thus far in the episode. Well, uh, at risk of, of of taking away the mystery, I yeah. think I'll just go ahead and reveal that that uh, Mulder and Scully meet the Were Monster. Is that it? Was called Were yes. Lizard or Were the Were Monster? Is, that is my favorite X Files of all time. That's number one on your list. Number one on my list. It's yeah. it's it's in a very close tie with the Hand de Verlitz. Yeah, but number one. Uh, Darren Morgan wrote it, and Darren Morgan has written the best X Files episodes. Uh, he, he, you haven't seen it, but he, he wrote an episode in season eleven that is just brilliant. It, I yeah. don't have any episodes from season eleven in my top ten list, but that isn't that's just because I haven't seen them twice, and I want to give them time to gel in my mind before I put them in. But the, I will, I will talk about it at the end of our discussion. But Darren Morgan has written, in my opinion, the best episodes of the X Files, and one of the things that's really become evident after the X Files left television. You know, they talk about in football coaching trees, like the Parcells coaching tree or whatever, Mm -hmm, you know, the Belichick coaching tree. The X-Files has an unbelievable legacy of writer tree. That is, people who have gone on to do amazing things with other shows. So there's a book called Difficult Men about the so-called golden age of television. It came out a couple years ago. And it kind of traces you through things like, you know, The Wire, Breaking Bad, Sopranos, Deadwood, you know, shows like that. And, um, if you look at, you know, and, and I think this is actually, I think this is actually why the X-Files was revived. Because, you know, it, in the 90s, television stars wanted to go into film. And with with the advent of shows like Breaking Bad, Sopranos, and so on, people realized the best performances in long-form narrative were done on television, in prestige television. Mm-hmm. And, and, I mean, there's no case where that's clearer than in the showrunner of Breaking Bad, which... uh of course, was X-Files uh, protege Vince Gilligan, mm-hmm. who you know did some of the best episodes of the X-Files and then went on to do Breaking Bad. And But he's not the only one. I mean, the people who did a number of you know the other writers, like Darren Morgan. Darren Morgan, unfortunately, has not gone on to do another big show. But um, you know, the, the, the writer tree of the X-Files is tremendous. And so I think that that was part of the way in which Gillian Anderson and David Duchovny decided to come back to it when they realized... You know, Chris Carter aside, some of the best writers in television, you know, made their kind of uh, 
made their reputations, built initial reputations, and, and developed their, honed their skills on the X-Files. And it shows. So if you really kind of want to understand the golden age of television, you can't look further than the X-Files. Um, th- that said, Darren Morgan, I think it's his best, his best episode. It's hilarious. It's philosophical. There are unbelievable rants. The interactions between uh, Mulder and Scully are wonderful. Uh, I think I've seen this episode, Mulder and Scully Meet the Werewizard, four or five times, and I can't get enough of it. I could literally watch it on repeat, <laughs> on a repeating loop, and I would be endlessly yeah. entertained. It's just so great. <laughs> it's so great. It's hilarious. Yeah. It's also got uh, Camille Nanjani, who, uh, oddly enough, um, a couple years ago, started a podcast on the X-Files, and then, of course, he starred in Silicon Valley, and then you know, nominated, uh, uh, developed an, a wonderful film last year called The Big, Big Sick that he wrote. But um, he's a huge X File fan and he's in it. And he plays a, speaking of character actors, right? Yeah. Wonderful actor. Uh, and he has a, a great role in it so, as well. Yeah. The, and the, the title character that we were looking for is played by Reese Darby. Oh, he's great. He, he is, is great. Just, <laughs> just incredible. <laughs> he's so good. Uh. If you've never seen The X Files and you're somehow listening to this, the show uh, hunt down uh, hunt down that episode and just watch it yeah, it's just great it's, it's so good <laughs> okay so that uh it's back to me um to my four, number four uh no sorry number five right kevin yeah yeah okay number five is an episode from season six and it's interesting i have a huge cluster of episodes from six season six starring the star of breaking bad brian cranston and mm. written by the showrunner of breaking bad vince gilligan it's called speed and I, oh, I think yeah. it's, I think Jillian uh, Anderson does such a wonderful job in this episode, um, but Brian Cranston is, of course. I mean, I don't know how many Emmys he won for Breaking Bad, and, and it's probably the consensus greatest television show of all time. Although The Sopranos and maybe Mad Men and The Wire are in the debate, but um, the premise is that he has a disease or a problem with him that he, if he does not stop driving and driving west, he will die. <laughs> and the opening logline is there's a there's a kind of a scene scene from the perspective of a news chopper where there's a high speed chase and the car stops and you see someone's head explode on the side of a, uh, from like the rear view you know a, a, a bird's eye view kind of a chopper view you see uh, someone's head explode from the rear windshield and the side wind uh, wind windshield and. It, the, the the episode just picks up steam and it doesn't stop. I'm not. It's not a perfect episode. I'm not sure if the ex, ultimate explanation is entirely satisfying, but the ending is nonetheless awesome. It's haunting. It's it's um um. It's one of the best episodes ending endings of any X Files episode, and it just keeps ratcheting up the tension over time. Right. So right. it's 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 great. <laughs> and it and it has this serious feeling of. <laughs> of dread because, <laughs> yes. and, and you're so sympathetic with the character and the pain that he's yeah. going through it, um, brian cranston does that so effectively <laughs> i could not agree with you more yeah well that is a fantastic episode even though it's not on my list so but we're getting into rarefied air here yeah <laughs> next episode for me nine number four on my list is clyde bruckman's final repose which is just another in the, the long line of incredibly funny incredibly good character actors in this case peter boyle oh god he's great who, i mean this the, the premise of this episode is that, that, that psychics and fortune tellers are getting killed well, peter specific, boyle 
Well, specifically, sorry, well, let me just let me just the specific premise is that he he knows when someone's going to die. Well, but that's yeah. I mean, that's yeah. not the that's not why Mulder and Scully are there, though. Right? No. They're investigating yeah. psychics and fortune tellers getting killed. They yeah. they are joined by Peter Boyle to help them, and his superpower is that he can tell how people are going to die just by touching them. I think, and so <laughs> it, it produces some fantastic f- scenarios. And this um th- this episode has maybe my second favorite um. I don't know, my second or third favorite line in the whole show. And that is <laughs> when he meets Mulder and then he, you know, he offers up to Mulder, do, do you want to know how you're going to die? I think at one point Mulder declines. But then later on, I don't know how long, how much time it is between that offer. But anyway, later on in the show, Clyde Bruckman, who is, who is Peter Boyle's character, just kind of offers up, and I'm quoting here. You know, there are worse ways to go, but I can't think of a more undignified way than autoerotic <laughs> asphyxiation. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's, I mean, to fully appreciate that, you have to understand that in the early seasons, there's a lot of illusions that, that yeah. Mulder is like a, a heavy into pornography. And so yeah. it's, <laughs> anyway, it's, it's, it's really funny. And seeing the, Peter Boyle deliver that line the way he does is just, just amazing. And by the way, that is one of the very few episodes that again has been written by Darren Morgan. So, okay. Darren Morgan, Darren Morgan did, oh, I think has only written like four or five episodes in the entire series. And, and we've just named like three of them. So, yeah. Well, yeah. Clyde Bruckman's final repose is it's got a, it's got a really cool investigation plot, of course. Right. But it just continues that theme that we've mentioned of comedy of character actors, but also are they or are they not legit? You know, it's got, it's got that theme in spades, especially with Peter Boyle. And I just, I just love it. And the resolution of the, the, the dramatic arc is wonderful. It's, it's, it's easily one of the top 10 episodes, but it, it just, didn't quite make my top 10 list because I'm yeah. a little more idiosyncratic in my selections. But if you were <laughs> to enough. ask any critic the top 10, it's almost certainly in the, their top 10. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so that brings me to number four, mm-hmm. which is another uh, Darren Morgan episode. And it's not only got Darren Morgan, but he stars in the episode. It's called Small Potatoes from oh, season four. So good. <laughs> it's It's kind of got that humbug element to it. You know, the, the kind of freak show circus aspect but the plot is the premise is really funny and the reason they get Mulder and Scully are called in is because the a number of children are born with tails vestigial tails and um all these women are having these relationships with with men that are in some cases you know like famous men or aliens or you know ridiculous things yeah, each one and, of the women has this fantastic story about I met this star that I love or this right. alien yeah and and they they all begin to blame the uh, obstetrician gyne- you know who who uh, OBGYN who uh, delivers their children, accusing them, and so it becomes this really interesting <laughs> dynamic where the doctor is the focus of attention. The episode is hilarious, it's dangerous, and it's poignant. <laughs> but um, the main character is Darren Morgan as Eddie Van Blunt, who is how do I put this? I'll just say he's a, a human chameleon. Um, and it's it's kind of a mystery as to what happens and and uh, who is who mm-hmm. and um i don't want to give away any more than that but it's uh it's 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 poignant because the of the way that the the, the antagonist feels mm-hmm. and and how his abilities make him feel and how he regards himself and his lack of his self esteem and 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 that's the title derives from that that tension small potatoes 
he is just so delightfully downtrodden at the end of that episode. <laughs> it's oh, he is fantastic. His portrayal, I mean, the, the writing is great also, but his watching performance. his performance is fantastic. Boy, Darren Morgan has made such a huge contribution to the X-Files. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Okay, well, number three for you. Number three for me is Bad Blood. This is Mulder and Scully sent to this small town to investigate (laughs) deaths by exsanguination. Yeah. Which, obviously, Mulder is pushing the the vampire angle, and Scully's not. But the, the linchpin for this episode is the narrative, which is all told in... In kind of 2.5 uh, acts, so to speak, uh, retroactively by Mulder and Scully, where it starts off with, well, how do you think it happened? And then she tells right, her version, right. and then it's like, no, this is how it happened, and he tells his version. So you get the story I love kind of that. two you- times, each with certain inflection points, and obviously each one favoring Mulder or Scully's interpretation, it- depending on the storyteller. It's a Rashomon yeah. type setup yeah it, it is but to, in the extreme because it's not yeah. about totally, it's not it, so much about truth you know it's completely distorted exaggerated yeah. it's, it's in- it, humorously exaggerated exactly and it's it, it has a guest star of owen wilson who plays the the sheriff of the town and it's just so funny oh, when God, it's funny <laughs> when, when scully tells the story owen wilson is this dashing charming guy that she's <laughs> she's just intrigued by his intelligence you know and so she's got this connection to him but it's not but it's it's respectful and professional right and in Mulder's version he's this buck toothed yeah. that Scully yeah, is rube. just gaga over like she can't form sentences when he's nearby oh it's and it has and it has what I think is my number one favorite uh line in the show which is not an original X-Files line by any stretch but at one point in Scully's um rendition of the story she encounters Mulder on the floor of his motel room after having been attacked and she 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 delicately goes to gently wake him and he immediately <laughs> rattles off the whole opening scene to shaft or the you know that the title <laughs> song to shaft you know who's the black private dick who's the sex machine he just rattles off the whole thing and he's singing it and then it cuts to present day where they're talking to each other about what happened and Mulder just says I did not. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's so good. It's one of my favorite interactions. And then obviously there's a mystery to go along with what's really going on. And it has hilarious resolution to that too, which is fantastic. (laughs) That that really is a great episode. That was just outside my top 10. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. The acting, the performances, the exaggerated perceptions. It's just, it's great. Oh yeah. Fantastic. All right. So what's number three for you? Number three uh, everyone, I've already said what my two and one are. Number three is very common on um, favorite episodes. It's possibly the epitome of all X-Files episodes. And it's so notorious that for a while it couldn't be broadcast unedited on tele- network television. <laughs> of course, I'm talking about Home from yeah. season four. Um <sighs> Where do you even begin, right? I, I know. Yep. <laughs> so the premise of Home is that there is a uh, yeah. I'm trying to distinguish between the setup and the premise. The premise is there is a you know it's kind of like in uh, in To Kill a Mockingbird, the Boo Radley situation. You know, the kind of person who lives on the block who's really really weird, and you never talk to them. You know, and they're kind of live by their themselves. Except in this case, it's the Peacock family who uh, is a multi-generational household of, fam- of families who have 
essentially inbred themselves over generations, and they live in a almost antebellum home that doesn't receive any electricity, and um, they live next to a sandlot. And um, because they have inbred so so intensely over the generations, not all of their children are viable. And so the opening scene and the reason it was banned from television is because Ugh. they literally are burying burying into the ground a, a, a baby that was born with significant severe deformities and uh, and disabilities. And um, and then these these little kids in the neighborhood playing baseball discover the body, and then it starts the investigation. But what is um, so, so there's this really serious, dark, you know, edge to the ed, edge to it. But it's overlaid with this really light humor. And in fact, um, the the sheriff in the town, I think, is called uh, um, Andy Taylor. Andy Taylor, right? Just yeah. like the uh, uh, the Andy Griffith show. And um, <laughs> and so there's the it's, it's set in a small town. It's got this kind of like homespun uh, Andy Griffith show setting, mm-hmm. but this kind of extremely bizarre uh uh family violently so and what makes puts the episode just over the top is the performance of the woman who by the way is uh, reappears as a different character in this season season 11 as the mother of the peacock family and the the conversations that she has with scully about motherhood Mm. about parenting about loving your family and your children (laughs) no matter how horrible they are monstrous they are is one of the most possibly next to beyond it probably supersedes beyond the sea or surpasses rather beyond the sea as the single most memorable performance by a character actor in the x-file when she gives that little speech well it's not only a, a, a great performance and a great speech but it's also still just incredibly troubling yeah. because this woman is a quadruple <laughs> amputee who lives under a bed <laughs> and so you're you're constantly assaulted and, and, with and, and severely disabled even before yes. being an amputee. Yeah. So you're constantly assaulted with her her just her aspect. Yeah. While she's delivering this otherwise impassioned and reasoned, you know, speech about family and love. And and it's it, exaggerated also because she talks about the war of northern aggression and this like southern yeah. draw and it's just it's right. so iconic. <laughs> And and so yeah, the the um, just all the the contrasts, the just violent yes. contrasts that you're forced to confront, <laughs> yeah, while you know taking in the narrative, yeah. And then it's got also this haunting quality. There's the the Johnny Mathis uh, song yeah. that replays over and over again in their 1950s song. So they really do such a good job of of bringing you into this Andy Griffith environment, you know, yeah. and you're just thrust into it, and and it becomes both ironic but also quite serious, deadly. So. Yeah, and the, the doesn't the episode? I think the episode fades out to with that Johnny the, with the song. song. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, yeah, and it's so that song is yeah, it's Haunting. just so ironic and beautiful. And th- th- this one's number one on my list. This is my oh. favorite ever episode. <laughs> it is. It's so disturbing and powerful and downright frightening. When the boys go to confront the sheriff, and I say confront is yeah. generous, <laughs> because because they have sussed out that the sheriff is is investigating them. I think right yeah. that they they realize they're in danger from the sheriff, basically, and it's just unbelievably brutal and painful. And then it also the the episode bears rewatching a few times too, because the first time I watched it, I didn't understand and it's, it's between the lines that one of the things because of their inbreeding is the the boys all have 
the um the condition where you can't feel pain yeah. i don't remember what that's called yeah there's multiple it, there's there's a there's a, a bit of dialogue where when they're testing the fetus or the the uh, the recently uh, not aborted but the baby that was buried there's a whole laundry list of diseases genetic diseases that the scully lists off and that's one of them yeah congenital insensitivity to pain known as congenital <laughs> analgesia that's what it yeah. is congenital but she also so, mentions that i think like Kurtzfield jakob syndrome and all these other things yeah. you know <laughs> and so it but it's that's i mean i mentioned that because it's actually material at multiple right. points throughout the, right. the the episode is that the boys um get into, boys. Physical, <laughs> they get into physical altercations at which and they um are decidedly they, advantaged yeah. yeah they can't be stopped basically <laughs> which which gives them this whole uh, uh zombie frankenstein kind of right. aesthetic right. to them when you're confronting them and also there's an important part where they strip naked in front of their mother right. up in their bedroom to impregnate and she, her. Yeah. And, well, they impregnate her, but also she inspects them oh, as yeah. much as you can when you're quadriplegic laying on the floor. She inspects them, and I remember specifically her delivering the line, "You look fine." Yeah. And the first time I saw that, I was like, "This is is this creepy and sexual?" And then I realized after multiple viewings, no, she is just their doctor. She, right. She's inspecting them physically right. because they have this this condition such that they wouldn't know if they were injured and yeah. it's oh just it's, layer it's upon multiple, layer in that multiple yeah. meanings yeah it's layered yeah. meanings oh, you know one so thing good. i was struck though when i watched it again and i is how young Mulder and scully are i mean they almost <laughs> look like they're both in their 20s in this episode yeah which is really weird but yeah but also you know there's you know Mulder has this love for baseball and it, it ties into that and it, it really is a great episode it's but it's disturbing i mean it's truly if, Truly. If anyone's listening to this and they are not already a, a, a rabid fan of the show, this might not be a good place to start, <laughs> even <laughs> though it is such a powerful and good episode. So, Kevin, I think all that's left is for your number two, if I'm counting correctly. Uh, yes, you're correct. My number two is one that I know is is well well regarded, and that is Jose Chung's From Outer Space. Ah, good. Yeah. <laughs> So I don't know how to encapsulate this episode, Steve. You can probably do better than I, because there is just a lot going too, on in this episode. Yeah, I, and, I don't and, think and, that I can actually. It's, well, it's, but again, yeah. this is you know the pinnacle of hilarious uh, character actors, ridiculousness of plot. And, and by the way, that was also written by Darren Morgan. <laughs> okay, I think we good. I think we've actually listed every single one of his episodes except for season eleven. <laughs> so I can give you the simple. I get to give you the simple Wikipedia version, and that is Mulder and Scully hear and promptly investigate a story about alien abduction of two teenagers. Each witness provides a different version of the same facts, and within the episode, a thriller novelist, Jose Chung, writes a book about the incident. And so it's another one of those... um, uh, what's the the reference for the multiple story t- versions of the same thing? The the K- movie Rashomon, Rashomon. Yeah, Rashomon. Yeah. It's it's another Rashomon's kind of situation, but it's also layered into this character played by Charles Nelson Riley, Jose right. Chung. Right, is ultimately Who's ends great. up writing a story, and it's it's hilarious because there's a screenshot on Wikipedia He's which kind of yeah, yeah, which kind of summarizes the thing. He ends up writing a story called From Outer Space, which just features. Uh, you know, uh, an alien head smoking a cigarette on the cover, which, which which is a reference, a thinly veiled reference to the book um, Communion, which had the alien head on the cover too, which was a novel about alien abduction. And the the way that Jose Chung's character ultimately summarizes events at the end is hilarious too, because it, it gets, you know, this fourth version basically of reality 
that that Scully specifically just box at. Uh it's it's just incredible because it weaves together so many of my favorite things about the 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 through lines of the show and the character actors and the comedy and the 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 Rashomon storytelling. It's all so good. So, so good. Um you know, I actually think we actually have mentioned every single Darren Morgan episode. I I'm really glad you mentioned that. That also had um it had, uh, of course, Jesse Ventura and Alex Trebek both had. Oh, it's the appearance. Men in Black. I completely yeah. forgot about that. <laughs> yes, and they show up with this hilarious mix of menace and irreverence, yeah. and their dialogue is unbelievable. And <laughs> I mean, it's it's almost literally unbelievable because they say the most ridiculous things. But to have Alex Trebek show up as this faux menacing character, and yeah. then you know, Jesse Ventura is an imposing person, you know, physically. But he gives you this air of of what's the word I'm looking for? It's like he he doesn't care really about what's happening here. Yeah, but yeah, you should. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's uh, a good. That's a good way of putting about putting it. It's it's kind of like he he doesn't really have any regard for the situation. But yeah, right. But he's still threatening you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a great episode. Yeah. Well, that, that takes us through our top 10. I did want to just offer a couple of honor of, of um, honorable mentions, though, because obviously a top 10 list can't contain everything that we think is, is – and so I thought we could just blitz through a couple of ep- other episodes that we thought yeah. were really great. I, I, I have two myself. Go ahead. Um, the, the Kathy Griffin episode I really liked. Do you remember yeah. that, that one? I, I don't remember I- – yeah, I don't have a strong memory of it, but now I just realized I, it's called. The her. It's called. Actually, that was Fight Club. Was it? Okay. Yeah, it's in the seventh season, and and I don't I don't remember if Mulder's in it or not, but it was really funny because she plays two different women. Yeah. <laughs> who who I think are you know often trying to date the same guys. That was pretty funny. Um, I'll mention just a couple, and then you can mention a couple, and then I can mention a few more. Uh, I actually really enjoyed X Cops, which was the cops riff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought that the just the the. Mulder was hilarious in that. I mean, the things he says on camera are funny. The people's reactions, the premise was really funny. It was so I, convincing I, as an episode of Cops, too. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like, it really par- it, uh, parodied the show so well. Oh, so effectively. Uh, Musings of a Cigarette Smoking Man is, of course, just mm. a wonderful episode if you haven't seen it. Um, yeah, we haven't had a lot of CSM in our top 10 list here, no, but he's so good. I, I mean, I think he, he is a wonderful actor. Uh, so I love the big long monologues that Jerry Harden does, especially after his death. You know, where he's in like the dre- the uh, sweat lodge sequences. I just love those monologues. Mm-hmm. Um, X Files does such great soliloquy. Um, yeah. Um, um, the uh, Darkness Falls from season one is such a creepy episode about insects. Um, yeah. I just love that one. And, and and I have to mention, there's two others. I'll just mention. I'll let you mention a few more. I've already mentioned All Souls, but um. Um, postmodern Prometheus might be the best episode ever written by Chris Carter. I think he wrote it. Um, it's kind of in the Jose Chung's from Outer Space and um, Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose is mm-hmm. kind of the best episodes, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's that's a really good one, Kevin. I, I was a little bit surprised it didn't make your list, but it's not well, a Darren and- Morgan episode, so. <laughs> no top 10 list is perfect. <laughs> yeah, but that, that's a good one. And then the last one I'll mention that's probably a little bit more obscure. I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's phonetically je suhate, so it's probably French. But it's uh, from season seven, and it's about a genie that grants three wishes, and it's really funny. Uh, do you remember this one, Kevin? 
No, I'm I'm okay, drawing well, a blank on this. So one. let who's me give you genie? a little bit of this. Episode. So there's there's this guy who's like a complete moron, and his brother, and they, he unrolls a rug or something, and then there's like this kind of hipster genie that emerges, and you actually get three wishes. And like he, one of the guy, the, one of the wishes the guy wants is to become invisible. So he becomes invisible. <laughs> I do then, remember that. And then he gets yes. like hit by a truck and he dies. <laughs> yeah. And so his brother uses one of the wishes to bring him back, and so he's like undead but also invisible. And and Scully <laughs> Scully gets the body and wants and is so excited to show it to these Harvard medical researchers. She's good, she's like, I'm gonna get so many accolades, I'm gonna write journal articles and so on and so forth. And then but but anyway, it was yeah, of course it doesn't work out for her. But what is so cool about the episode is it actually is set up first of all, I love the the actress who performs who plays the genie yep. and the actors who perform the the the, the, the dunces. Mulder is actually confronted with the question of what would you wish if you could wish? You know, the the eternal, you know, um, you know, the the, the eternal um, conversation starter. What would you wish for? And uh, you know, he actually co- d- contemplates it very seriously and actually d- does some wishes, and it doesn't quite turn out the way he hopes. <laughs> if you remember, Kevin. So yeah, I yeah. thought that deserved an honorable mention. I, I I remember the two brothers. You're right. They're so yeah. It's fantastic how bumbling they are. Yeah, like you, like one of the wishes is like a boat, and they have this gigantic boat yeah. in there next to their trailer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and they're like you know, and there's the debate as to whether to actually make one of the wishes to free the genie, right? The genie. Right. So really cool. Well, I only have two honorable mentions. One of them is Anasazi. Oh and yeah. There's not a lot of mythology episodes in our top 10, and part of it is because, well, part of it be- is because I, f- I found the whole mythology to be pretty rambling by the by the second half of the show's run, but Anasazi has some, some key touch points that I really enjoyed from a mythology standpoint. One of them was the Navajo Code Talkers, Loved which it. I think is a fantastic microcosm of, of military espionage in the you know, in the World War era. But also, Anasazi ties in smallpox vaccines as part of the kind of infection sub-theme that, that runs through the whole mythology. Right. And so I, I don't believe it's, you know, an amazing narrative episode, so to speak, but it had some real-world tie-ins because one of the things I enjoy about the X-Files is the 50s-era sci-fi tie-ins. Right. Um, that the show is kind of formed the foundation of the whole area 51 alien invasion thing it it becomes rambling like i said as as the mythology moves on but i really enjoy its its roots in these real world elements the other episode i'd like to point out is squeeze Squeeze oh yeah i already mentioned tombs earlier but yeah yeah. squeeze is the third episode of the show (laughs) and it's important to point out i think how satisfyingly archetypal the the character relations, especially between Mulder and Scully, are established in that episode. There are so much started in this third episode of the show. It's really the first Monster of the Week episode ever that becomes so standard, but is is so satisfyingly done in this first one. You know, Mulder's keen intuition for things other people didn't notice, his open-mindedness, and Scully's skepticism, but yeah. the relationship of how she brings science to uh, you know, to his his open-mindedness is, you know, to a fault. And just, uh, uh, and you already mentioned the satisfaction of the character of Tombs and 
you know him and being God recurring. Hutchinson plays such yeah, plays it so well. It's yeah. so cool. I just the the investigation, the mystery, the sci-fi, the just the, weirdness. The weirdness. <laughs> I mean, but I mean, it really set the stage though for the most of the rest of the show. Keep in mind, this is episode three, and already you've yeah. got this weird shape shifting person, and then all the ways that he, you know, his character and his abilities bring about the the input and the the methodologies and the viewpoints of Mulder and Scully is just super satisfying, especially for episode three. Well put. So I, I'll close. I'll close by just mentioning that uh, I know you haven't seen it, so I'm not going to get into it much. <laughs> but season eleven, you know, the, in season ten and eleven, the weakest episodes are the the myth arcs. The, and I yeah. think, unfortunately, the myth arc in in season eleven is even worse than in season ten. But the, the remaining episodes, the remainder episodes are all outstanding. Uh, two, three, four, and five are just could easily be in my top twenty. Yeah. All of them. And the Darren Morgan episode, The Lost Art of Forehead Sweat, is particularly brilliant and could easily <laughs> easily be in my top five. It's uh what it does though, it, you know, in one of the reasons that David Duchovny is so effective as Fox Mulder is because the nature of the role of Fox Mulder is this obsessive obsessive uh quest for the truth. Mm-hmm. But as an actor, he's such an understated actor, it actually makes that search so much more powerful, right? And um what the lost art of forehead sweat does, much like the other Darren Morgan episodes, is it's a deconstruction of the genre of the X Files, and it complexifies what is actually meant by the truth. <laughs> what is the truth, and what mm-hmm. does it matter if you find the truth? Like, if you knew all the answers, what would your life would you would you still have meaning in your life? And it actually kind of confronts those questions in a really a really dynamic and powerful and really humorous way. Um, it's it's brilliant, but cool, but also. Honestly, all the episodes in the season, except for the first, are really, really great. I, I mean, in the last episode that I watched, Ghoulie, has such poignant moments between Scully and Mulder. It's hard to even... Uh, I had to watch it some of the scenes multiple times because it's so beautiful. Um, yeah. It's just they're, they're, they're in such a different space. And, and in Plus One, they begin to actually <clears throat> grapple with the question of what does it mean to be older? You know, what does it mean to be kind of post-childbearing? Mm-hmm. age and and what does it mean for their quest and their life's goals and it's it's a really interesting i i, I have to say as much as i adored Mulder and scully in their 20s or 30s i love them even more in their early 50s late 40s yeah i just think they're so much more compelling they're so much richer they're so much more layered and complex you know Mulder has <laughs> totally mellowed out you know <laughs> it's just he's just and and Scully is is so much more contemplative and reflective, and I, I it's just I'm just it totally thoroughly enjoying this season. Yeah, well, and I've apart from the X Files, I've really enjoyed Gillian Anderson's acting career in the last decade. If any of you are X Files fans, and especially hers, and you haven't looked at her other work from the last decade, I would strongly encourage you to do so because she has really become incredible and the tv work she's done especially her last uh, i'm specifically pointing to her work in hannibal and the fall i just really 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 like her work lately good stuff well this is a great great show and we'd be happy to hear your thoughts on the x-files and you tell <laughs> us why we're right or why we're wrong <laughs> right any any top 10 list is invariably gonna gonna produce some Invite strong feelings in somebody yeah 
So definitely. And thanks for hanging out for this additional content for episode 76. You can tweet us at many insane plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next episode, we wish you many insane plays. Ha, 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 ha.